The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And today on The Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when you have a man and that man has a board game and a dream? What happens when everyone, from the guy who brought you Blues Brothers and Animal House, to Tony Award-winning Tom Stoppard, to Psycho's Norman Bates, try, and at first pass fail, to make it happen? How did a film, pitched as Parker Brothers meets His Girl Friday, or And Then There Were None, brought to you by Hasbro, draw in so many A-list names of the 1980s? And how did this veritable box office disaster, loathed by critics everywhere, grow into one of the most enduring and endearing cult films decades after its initial fall? A treasury of dry wit that stands as classically timeless as the game from which it was designed. Well, let's find out. Because today we are trying to solve the prepackaged mystery that is Jonathan Lynn's 1985 film Clue. So sit back and avoid the cognac as we take you through some of the ways this film could have, would have, and did indeed happen. Brought to you by Face Flames, The Casual Merriment of Group Necrophilia, Scampering to the Beat, That Moment That Serial Murder Begins to Get Serious, The Beatniks of Armageddon, and all the red herrings of communism. And, of course, our safe word today is capitalism. Anything to add, Benji? God, London, when you call me that, I hate it so much. The just <laughs> flames, flames at the side of my head. It's white hot. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of space. <laughs> Boy. Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. Ninja! I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Where? Oh, hi, Mark. Uh, hello, London. Hey, Benji. Yeah, yes. Hello, and welcome, one and all, to Cinema of Cruelty. Yes, and since this is the inaugural episode, in theory, would you like to take a moment and explain what in the world Cinema of Cruelty actually is? Well, Cinema of Cruelty, the name comes from the theater of cruelty, which will have a kind of episode zero that will go into more detail about the history of that. But essentially, it was theater from the early 20th century that was meant to just get people out of their seats and rile them up. Uh, theater that was never meant to comfort you or lull you into a happy place. You were always meant to be activated by what you were seeing. Cinema Assaulted. Your senses were supposed to be assaulted by what was happening in front of you. And I think that transitions nicely into cinema of cruelty because so many of the films that we are into assault you with themselves. They force themselves upon you. You are left altered by them by the end of the viewing. So this is one of the things about Benji and I. So Benji and I, we hate each other, but we really, really like certain types of cinema and we learned very quickly when 
pitching the cinema of cruelty that very few people actually knew what we were talking about in terms of this <laughs> reference to theater of cruelty, whereas both of us independently were like, oh, yeah, the theater of cruelty. So apparently this is not as ubiquitous of a term as we initially thought it was. But hopefully, yeah, there, there are those out there that also appreciate some cruel cinema and I would say that the only thing more powerful than our hatred of each other is our unencumbered joy of batch insane cinema that we constantly go down rabbit holes into over and over again. So this is the power of cinema. It can bring dichotomous individuals like Benji and I together. That, that's going to be the thing. He's unfortunately one of my closest friends, so that, that just Why shows how sad, me about sad that? our lives are. I don't so, need a reminder that we're close friends, London. Because I'm a sadist. That's why I'm doing the cinema of cruelty, Benji. That's why I keep you around. So another thing that we kind of got feedback on very early when we pitched doing Clue as the inaugural episode is, well, how is that movie cinema of cruelty, right? How is that a cruel film? And if you notice the other movies that are featured on this podcast or will be featured on this podcast, Clue does sort of stand out as maybe not the most avant-garde, not the most experimental for a modern audience. However, that wasn't necessarily the case when it came out in 1985. Very true. Going back and researching this film, I was a little aware that this film, like it was often referred to as a cult film, one that gained popularity, but I wasn't really ready for the vitriol that critics of the time had for it. Contemporary reviews for this film were horrible. Yes, and we will get into those reviews a little bit more extensively later on, but we'll throw that out there first. People hated this film when it came out. One of those reasons is because although now modern filmgoers might be a little bit more familiar with the concept of taking a board game and turning it into a movie, this was this is the OG of board game cinema when initially they pitched, hey, let's take a board game and turn it into a film. That was met with a lot of blank stares, much sort of like the Battleship movie would later be met with blank stares. But the Battleship movie in theaters was met with blank stares when people just looked at it and thought to themselves, what? Why? Yes. <laughs> so why was a question that was on people's minds back before there was Jumanji and Ouija and all these kind of films. There was also the experimental thing that we will also get into more at length later, but the concept of this film having three separate endings that all appeared separately in theaters. So although the modern DVD version and even the cable version in the 90s had all three endings put together back to back, a lot of the viewers were just seeing one and they never knew which one they were going to get. And that is an interesting cinema of cruelty experience. Oh, really. absolutely. You essentially had a movie going audience that was denied a canonical ending to the story that they just watched because you weren't too sure. Well, which ending is the real ending? And in his and review, they all for, are. yeah, in his review for the movie, Roger Ebert even said, why didn't they just show all three endings at once? Why not just do that? And is what they ended up doing when this movie came out on home video. The ending was changed up to where, yeah, it was just all three at one time. When it came out on DVD and later Blu-ray, the discs offered an odd option where you could choose to watch the movie with only one 
ending randomly selected for you. Yeah, I have that DVD. Yeah. Super fun. Okay, I I would not I would never want to watch this movie any other way than the three endings strung together because that's the fun of it to me is seeing one the different endings and also the similar lines and jokes that snuck themselves into all three endings. Yeah, this movie really is incomplete without its multiple endings, since that is sort of the crux of Clue, is the idea that you can have multiple endings to this board game type setup. Also, Jonathan Lynn. Clue was actually his first big film. He was a theater guy prior to this, and he had done some TV work in Britain, but this is kind of his movie debut. And one of the reasons this is great cinema for cruelty pick as an inaugural thing is because ties to the theater are still there in this movie. We've got a director who worked in theater both as an actor and as a director and so a lot of this film is staged actually in the way that a stage play might be. We've got a lot of those sort of pullback master shots. We've got a lot of full cast interaction and we've got some really long lines long sort of interactions of dialogue with very little cuts. And so that really shows like the demarcation of a theater director. Yes, we get a little bit of that theater theme in with our cinema. How about that? It is an aside of why it's important for the theater of cruelty. So one of the things that I was going to ask you is, okay, if you were going to do any board game and turn it in to a movie, what would be your, your board game pitch? I think it would be Monopoly and take the angle on capitalism that this movie takes on communism. God damn it. I had that exactly in my notes. What about this sort of weird, creepy, dystopic, avant-garde Monopoly? This is what we deal with. We keep thinking, all right, I got this awesome idea. No No way London thought of this. No, we both already thought of that. Damn it all. Although I also obviously want some kind of strange surrealist version of Candyland because I'm surprised that hasn't been done. What would be the worst movie to turn into a board game? Scrabble. See, I had Connect Four. <laughs> uh, Connect Four, okay. Yeah, that would be really abstract. That so would. This uh, is what we're going to do on our off time after this podcast is you're going to write me a pitch script to Connect Four, and I'm going to try to do one for Scrabble. <laughs> and we're going to see what we can come up with. All right. All right. I, 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 or, I picked dibs on David Lynch directing Connect Four. He probably could do it. That'll be another thing you'll notice. David Lynch, I think, has come up every single episode so far that we've recorded. What? That we've recorded? This is their first episode. London, what are you talking about? What other episodes? This is the pilot. That's that's how avant-garde, experimental, cruel things happen. There is no linear (laughs) timeline. How did you first hear about Clue? Uh, I actually, yeah, this is a fun thing for me to look back on. I had never heard of this film until I think it was my sophomore year of college. And I remember it was like one of those, you know, the the situations that often happens to us young lads in college when we, when we meet ladies, uh, it was in my dorm and there was a gal who lived at the other side of the dorm and I've been chatting her up a whole lot. And so I'm like, okay, well, she seems really cool. I don't know if she's into me or not. I don't know what this is. And she says, uh, "What? Hey, what are you doing tonight?" I'm like, uh, "I didn't have any plans." Oh, I brought my VHS of Clue from home. Do you want to watch it? W- wait, watch it where? Like, well, in your room. 
Yeah, yeah, we can watch a movie in my room. Yeah, awesome. He's like, okay, yeah, great. Runs back to her room. I sit down. I immediately like throw some, you know, popcorn into my $50 microwave. Get that going. Like, all right, fucking day, man. I think we're going to have a good time tonight. She brings it back in. She says, yeah, this movie is great. I just showed it to my boyfriend. He loves it, too. Oh, okay, cool. Well, I <sighs> got the popcorn going. Let's go ahead and do this. <laughs> And she started up the movie, and pretty soon I didn't care about any of that because I was just enjoying the movie so much. So this is your cinema is better than sex story, is that? Well. In Clue's case? Cinema improved an evening where I thought sex might might be happening, but it did oh, not. Oh, that's and... cute that you ever think sex might be happening. Oh, good God. Okay. So. How did I you first... hear about this movie, London. I first came across Clue because of Rocky Horror Picture Show. So I was a huge fan of, well, I still am a huge fan of Rocky Horror, but I became (laughs) a big fan of Rocky Horror Picture Show in the seventh grade, strangely enough. A friend of mine had a copy of it. We got really into it. We started going to midnight showings, dressing up. As these 13-year-old kids, so looking back, <laughs> I'm like, well, that's interesting. As ridiculous as the idea of 13-year-olds going to Rocky Horror Picture Show dressed up as the characters is, I'm not at all surprised that you were doing it. Yeah, I, I totally, totally went and, and did that. After I fell in love with Tim Curry, we went out to look for his other films, the other repertoire. And the 1985 Clue had already come out and we found a copy of it. And then I fell in love with Clue in its own right, have thrown multiple murder mystery house parties over the years with Clue themes and whatnot, where we show the movie and then we have a murder mystery. And so it has become a a staple of my enthusiastic cosplay life. I do have to say in rewatching this film, I thought to myself, Yeah, this is Tim Curry, but Tim Curry is amazing in this, but he's not completely uncaged in this one, so to speak. This is not Rocky Horror Picture Show Tim Curry. This isn't, you know, spice Tim Curry, but it's Tim Curry at his most wry and spastic, I would say. All variations of Tim Curry are the true Tim Curry. He's a (laughs) multifaceted, layered individual. So... What is the best thing about this movie? Well, I think we're both going to say with the best thing about this movie, and that'll lead into our next section. So I think we need to start off with the worst thing about this movie. And I would say the worst thing about this movie is the last line of the movie. Yeah, that's fair. The no homo. Yeah, it's cop out. uh, Yeah. Like, I get that it was 1985, but man, that was disappointing. Yeah, I will bitch about that at length when we get to the endings. <laughs> Don't you worry. I, I knew that you would. Yeah, what's your worst thing? So my worst thing also involves the endings. That's a big one for me. And then the fact that they actually didn't film all of the endings. So way, way initially, I know you're going to talk about the lost fourth ending, but mm-hmm. there also is initially a pitch that they try to find a way to have the six to seven different endings, each one being okay if this character had done it with this weapon in this room so that they had a just barrage of all six endings. And the studio at the time just said, no, nobody's going to put up with that. 
Although that's sort of surprising to me, considering they weren't stacking all of the endings together anyway. So what did what the fuck did they care? Just have six separate prints, which might have even been more interesting than three different endings. But as concerned as they were that somehow this would put it into a two and a half hour runtime, the film as it stands feels a little bit too short to me every time I watch it. The Mm -hmm. endings feel a little bit clipped on, even when there are three of them. So I really would have loved if they were going to be fast clipped endings like that to really just see it through and do. This is the way that we could have tied in each individual person having committed this murder. That would have been more satisfying to me somehow. I've heard talks about uh, a remake of this thing for Netflix. And to me, when I heard that, I thought, okay, why not try doing like what the Black Mirror Boondersnooch thing was. Boondersnooch. Yeah, like the the choose your own adventure thing, but actually make it fun. Black Mirror, as Black Mirror often does, takes a really cool concept and makes it the least fun thing possible and just makes you say... Takes it way too seriously. Yeah, like, oh, good Lord, guys. Hey, yeah, wow, that's a really serious episode about a mobile app. Boy, that... uh, Yeah. It's okay, Uh, man. Shake it off. Shake it off. Black Mirror, man. (laughs) That one Star Trek episode was really cool. But besides that, Black Mirror. The Star Trek episode was good. That was pretty bad. So Netflix pitch for Clue. Yeah. Yeah. Make it a choose your own adventure thing. Make it multiple endings, multiple paths that it can take. Much more faithful to really what the board game is. That would be really cool. I don't know if that's going to happen. But that would be my ideal situation is Clue Remake. That's a choose your own adventure action on Netflix. That'd be really cool. It's not really the worst thing about this movie, though, is it? Because they couldn't see into the 2020 future for a a Netflix spinoff. So what is the best thing about this movie? No contest. The cast. Yeah. Yep. The cast is the absolute best thing about this movie. This movie gets better for me every single time I watch it because of this cast. I cannot think of a better example of a movie with so many character actors and it gives them so many opportunities to shine as Clue does. Yes, so we just have some great comedic talent here. Yeah, my notes say best thing that it exists, period. The cast, period. (laughs) Yeah, the cast is... A really astounding group of people. We've got Tim Curry, Eileen Brennan, Madeline Kahn, Christopher Lloyd, Michael McKean, Martin Mull, and Leslie Ann Warren are going to comprise our core colorful characters, as it were. All really great names in the 80s when this film came out. They apparently all got along with each other really, really well and had a lot of fun on set. And that mm-hmm. really shows in this film as well. So, yeah. And I, I always love hearing those stories or reading about that, because very often it seems that the amount of fun people have on the set of a movie is inversely related to the quality of the film and vice versa. Sometimes you hear about fantastic movies that were apparently absolute hell to make. But this, it seems like everyone was having a great time and the result was a movie that's really fun to watch. It is really fun to watch. Uh, There's a quote. So I read a lot of interviews with the cast and the director. And one of the things that I found really endearing was Martin Mull talking about the cast all getting along. And he said that 
There were an awful lot of instances where it was impossible to keep a straight face. In fact, we were laughing so much. One thing that has stayed in mind is before every take of every scene, Michael McKean would say to everyone in the cast, something terrible has happened here to try to bring us back to the reality of where we were. It got to be quite a funny little catchphrase. So apparently the catchphrase that originated on set is, no, something terrible has happened here that Michael McKean kept trying to repeat to the cast whenever they got to off book. No, something terrible. You guys, something, terrible. something really bad happened here. Come on. All right. So the film overall, I'm sure everyone can probably guess the lightning summary, even if you haven't seen it. But the lightning summary for this film is it is a game of Clue played out with live action actors, complete with three possible endings. That's it. That is the movie. That <laughs> and it's is lightning summer. The whole movie. It's true. Yes. So having said that, we'll get into this. I mean, I think there are going to be many moments when we say they run around, they search the place. You know, Yvette has cleavage. That is quick summaries of most scenes. Yeah, but some of the fun stuff is also in the details. So the way that we'll kind of go through this summary is setting up the key points of plot, which there, there's not a whole lot of plot outside of a game of Clue played out in front of us in live action, but trying to hit on some of the, the really fun details. And then we will be pinning certain scenes so that when we come back to them at the end of the summary, that we can really kind of delve into some specific topics that would bog down the summary to, to try to stitch it in there. London explains the concept. Yes. Well, you know, inaugural episode and all that. Figured I'd I'd throw it out there. Even though inaugural episode. What about all those other episodes you say that we recorded? There's no linear time what are you talking in about avant garde theater. Ben. I'm There's so no confused. I'm left confused by the cinema of cruelty. That doesn't go away. Okay. So first thing about this film, what was the first thing that you noticed? Well, we get just. What I, one thing I absolutely loved, and this shows the movie did not want to shy away from its source material. The title card clue is the exact same font as the board game itself. Yeah. Like if you play the board game and you see that, you're like, yeah, all right, good deal. I get that. I think any other movie would try to do something else with it, shy away from it. This movie, fuck no, man. This is a board game movie. You know what you came for, audience. Let's do this thing. Yeah, this movie is going to pay a really interesting amount of attention to the board game. Although, to be fair, as I was doing a little bit of research on Clue the board game, I did not know until looking this up that Clue is only what it's called in North America. And, in uh, yeah. The What's UK it, it is, is Cluedo. Cluedo. Interesting. So this is a British game initially. It was patented in the UK in 1949 as Cluedo. And it was a play on words from Clue and then also the Latin word Ludo, which means I play. And apparently Parcheesi or something in the UK is also called <laughs> Ludo. So it's a Latin pun, guys. A huh. Latin pun. That's so strange because just the name Clue makes so much more sense for what this game is. It it does, yeah. So the shortening was essential. And so we were already setting this up as a North American location, probably by calling it Clue. Yes, very true. And well, okay, so to keep it going here, uh, our hero, well, my hero anyway, Tim Curry, 
rolls up to the house in his, you know, those cars in the 1950s that were acres of car, basically gigantic things, gives the mansion like kind of fuck me eyes as he often does to anything. And Tim Curry, anything Tim Curry looks at, he wants to fuck it, in my opinion. That might be us and the objects projecting. Yeah. (laughs) Not mutually exclusive options either. But the setup for so I always dwell a lot on the the initial sort of first 10 minutes of a film because I really like the setup of stuff. So I really love how this title card opens on this ominous sky. It's overcast. There are clouds. The Mm. music comes rolling in. It's really a gorgeous atmospheric shot that our Wadsworth Tim Curry is going to arrive and pull up to this equally ominous atmospheric mansion. And so the mansion was a physical location. Most of the other shots throughout the film are going to be built on the Paramount soundstage, but they did find the one mansion. From what I understand, the mansion itself, the exterior was made to look a little bit larger through matte painting work or something like that. But it's it's just the classic haunted mansion look. Lightning is striking everywhere around it. It's dark and ominous. I absolutely love this house. Again, there's going to be some dogs that Tim Curry has come prepped for. He's got a bag of bones and stuff to throw to these guard dogs. So you get the sense he's been here before. He's been prepped on the layout. And he tightens the chain because Tim Curry, he knows how to tighten the chain, how to tighten the restraint when he needs to. (laughs) This entire thing is just going to be you being super wet for Tim Curry, isn't it? I will neither confirm nor deny this. That's, okay, that's I'll confirm fine. it. Who am I kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going I'm to let it happen. So we also are going to get a title card that reads that it is New England 1954. So it lets us know the mm. location and the time period, even though we also get sort of contextual hints to support this. Although this location is also something I'm going to briefly dwell on here for a moment because we've got a lot of fun production things happening. We have... This house being called Hill House, which Mm. is interesting because of the Shirley Jackson novel and how we associate Hill House. Total coincidence, apparently, because this house was named after the producer on this film, Deborah Hill. Oh, so (laughs) so it's not a house on Hunting Hill reference. It's not a house on Haunting Hill reference deliberately, (laughs) although it might at the same time be. I can't say that they weren't aware of Hill House, but they have commented that it was named after the producer. And so... Everybody sees this, though, and they think, is this also happening at the infamous location of the haunting? We also have or will have Scarlet at one point mention that the house they're going to is off of Route 41. So I'm a New Englander by trade, so I'm immediately kind of peaked up by this. Only you could be a New Englander by trade, not by origin or by location, by trade. Trademarked, born and bred New England. Good God. The Go ahead. Go ahead. Tell me about Route 41 from your trade. Yes. Route 41 is an actual route in in New England that runs through the northwestern section of Connecticut and cuts through the southwestern part of Massachusetts. So if this is off Route 41, that means that this hill house is somewhere in either the corner of Massachusetts or somewhere around Connecticut. So we can kind of pin this down a little bit more. However, the license plate 
that Tim Curry is pulling up in is a Washington, D.C. plate. And we know that all of these people eventually are going to have connections to Washington, yeah. D.C. That'll make much more sense later on. Yeah. So it's just odd, however. So we're already setting up this premise that this dinner that these people are all invited to, they're all driving in from D.C. into the Connecticut, Massachusetts area to attend a dinner at this anonymous mansion in the middle of New England. And that's kind of fun. I'm not saying that this is some yeah. sort of fuck up because it's not. They tried really hard to pinpoint this location. So it's just it's a clue to to dwell on perhaps yes. for later. Uh, the opening and also we meet some of our supporting characters. We meet the cook and the cook is watching TV. And if you know your stuff, you kind of get an exact date for when this film takes place based on what she sees in the television. Yes, we do. Another amazing little detail. I won't pin this one because we can actually say very quickly. Yes. What's on the television? It is the live televised Army versus McCarthy hearings. And so those took place on June 9th, 1954. So we know now that our day of clue is June 9th, 1954. Those hearings, if I'm not mistaken, are where we get that famous quote like, have you no decency, sir? Have you lost all decency, Senator McCarthy? Is yes, that right? that's where that, that comes is from. Okay. indeed where that quote comes from. We also get the quote that is featured more prominently right now in this scene that professors and teachers who are getting their orders from Moscow, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so here is red herring or communism red herring number one. We get it right from the beginning that the cook is listening to the Army McCarthy trials. And we are introduced to the subtle idea that professors and teachers, professors, you say, Professor Plum, perhaps, might be getting his orders from Russian Soviet or the Communist Party. Professor Plum, if that is your real name. Yeah, he it, might it, be a it spy. It actually isn't, but whatever. Yeah, we exactly. Also, we also meet the maid, Yvette, uh, who I am going to try and most likely fail to not be too lecherous when I talk about Yvette because this is the greatest bosom ever committed to film. This outfit. <laughs> My God. I think uh, this is one of the reasons I was enjoying the movie so much that night. I realized that this other girl was not interested in me. I'm like, I don't care. This this is in my life now. This is this is glorious. I'm seeing a certain type of development happening where you saw this film on a night that you expected sex. And now we're just sexualizing every single moment of Clue. <laughs> Okay. From Tim Curry to I would, I would say the sexualization of Tim Curry, that kind of came about later. Tim Curry uh, sexualizes life. himself, really. It, that's, that's just natural. I mean, sexualizing this outfit that Yvette has. This is what it's meant for. And appropriately, anytime that she's on screen with other characters, they're all glancing like, dear God, you're huge. Yvette is going to have on this really low-cut French maid's costume. This was apparently something the actress did show up in for her auditions. It was that moment of inspiration where Colleen Camp said, I'm going to put on a French maid's uniform and show up for the audition and see what happens. Knowing that Colleen Camp auditioned in an outfit like this is nice to know because very often in films when women are dressed up like this, it wasn't really their choice, wasn't really their idea, but it seems she was more into the idea of, yeah, let's do that, man. That's going to be hilarious. This was a role that apparently Madonna and Demi Moore and somebody else all read for and Colleen Camp ended up getting the role yeah, out of all and, of them. Uh, so. Ma Madonna, I, we've seen from Madonna's other film work, she has absolutely no sense of comedy or comedic timing. That would have been horrible. 
to me more, I could see making this work. Uh, it just it would be a very different kind of character. We'll discover yeah. as we discuss possible casting choices later Jennifer on. Jennifer Jason Lee was the other one who tried Okay, to and that also that could have worked too. But what Colleen Camp brings to it, I think that even the director at some point in an interview said that he did think Colleen Camp had great comedic timing, but more or less her figure was what got her the role just because he realized how much they could you know have fun with that. She remains really excited about her portrayal in this film. So that's good. It's it's an all mm-hmm. sort of supported, healthy embrace all around. We also get the introduction of the other people, our kind of primary cast of characters. And a really cool detail that's going to happen is we're going to see them all arriving in their cars. And their cars are all going to be the color of the pieces that exist for their inaugural character in the game. Yes, which is appropriate because their clothing is often the opposite of what their names are. Miss Scarlet wears green. Miss White wears black. Yeah, and that's really bothered me as a kid. I wanted them to be dressed in their colors. (laughs) Now I'm over it. Now I would not change Miss Scarlet's dress for the world. But yeah, it is a fun little thing to just have these moving pieces enter the frame of these color-coded cars. I did notice some of the car make and models, which are kind of fun as well. It looked like a lot of the thoughts about what kind of car these people would drive individually was something that the production designer thought about. So Colonel Mustard drives a Cadillac. Mrs. White drives an MGTD convertible. We've got Mrs. Peacock in a blue Packard Deluxe. Mr. Green is in a 1950s Plymouth. Miss Scarlet, of course, drives a 46 Lincoln Continental. And Professor Plum drives a 49 Pontiac Streamliner station wagon. At some point, he's going to come and pick Scarlet up from her broken down Lincoln Continental into a... Pontiac station wagon, trading and I, down. And I remember when I first saw this film and Christopher Lloyd's character shows up, I thought to myself, whoa, Doc Brown, awesome. This is pre-Back to the Future for him. Back to the Future hadn't come out yet. So this was, I think, his last film role before Back to the Future, like kind of cemented him into that character. But he's playing a completely different guy. And I think when I was watching this with Michelle, we we're both like, is that his actual hair color? Because we're so used to thinking of him <laughs> as like having like, you know, shock white hair. But no, that's his real hair yeah. color. Yeah, this is this is just Lloyd doing his thing. <laughs> Letching it up like he does. This is also going to be one of the fun There are many more reasons to set it in the 1950s, but the 1950s already becomes a really fun setting with the use of these cars because you can get them in all of these fun, weird blue and mint green colors or the purple station wagon and have that still accurate color representation of 1950s cars because there was this time period of vehicle paint jobs where they had (laughs) that sort of mid-century atomic color palette. And so we're really utilizing that here. I don't know. I just really love the car thing. I'm a big fan of what they're doing with the cars. No, absolutely. When the first guest arrives, one thing I love that they introduce really quickly is he says, uh, I'm Colonel Wadsworth stops him. Tonight, sir, you will be going by a pseudonym. And this is one of the many brilliant ways I thought that the writers were able to reverse engineer details of the game into the movie by telling us Colonel Mustard, Miss Peacock, Miss Scarlet, these aren't their actual names because Mm -hmm. that's ridiculous. But for their purposes, they have to go by these names, which will be explained later on. So I just love that detail. 
I do too. Yeah, that was another really nice choice. This is going to be another reason for the 1950s later. The writer Jonathan Lynn talked about how we needed a reason for all of these people to feel like it was quite understandable and common to just show up at a dinner party and be assigned an alias. When else can you do that in U.S. history better than (laughs) the McCarthy era? So the use of aliases here ties also really nicely into the 1950s setting. We get some really great character introductions that are just displayed through comedic timing, little choices. Madeline Kahn is going to show up in Mrs. White. She sort of opens that coat that has the bright silk white lining. And that's going to be the one hint of white that we get in for her character other than her car. And just her display there, just the way that she kind of comes in and owns the scene. We've got Miss Scarlet, whose car breaks down, and her first instinct when she sees a car coming is to really strike a very seductive pose, She'd kick up one heel. ass right out there. And, of <laughs> course, we've got Professor Plum, who's this lecherous creeper, getting established really quickly that he slams on those brakes when he sees Scarlet's silhouette yeah. and pulls right over. And oh, my God. Oh, oh. And then... Peacock is going to see Yvette's ample bosom in her face, and she's just going to react to it in this she is just very scandalized way. So mystified wonderful. by those tits. <laughs> and then we get Mr. Green responding to the sit command. So he's oh, coming in that. the house, and Tim Curry tells the dogs, sit, and... Mr. Green just sits right down on that bench and then realizes that he's not the one that was supposed to be the recipient of the command, but he obeys. When Tim Curry tells you to sit, you obey. I know. Immediately, I'm like, I'm shipping this. Mr. Green (laughs) and Wadsworth, I'm here for it. Okay, so first we have them all gathering for dinner. Yes. And we get the Colonel Mustard quote from Kipling. That says the female of the species is more deadly than the male. And that's going to set up some expectations right there. Do you agree with that, Miss Scarlet? He's like, do you like Kipling, Miss Scarlet? As he's handing her a plate of fish. Sure, I'll eat anything. They ask, like, where's our host? And he says, oh, no, no, that's uh, that's for the seventh guest. They're like, what? What are you talking about? Mr. Body. He's not our host. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Wadsworth is delightfully vague on all things, which is very fun. Yes. Uh, I have to say, as as a tribute to how great the comedic timing of all this is, they begin slurping soup. They're slurping on soup and it is just it's it's funny. It's it's good. It's it's good comedy. It's good slurping (laughs) comedy. I love Mrs. Peacock just not able to handle the silence of the room. And she just cuts in and goes off on that diatribe of, well, I'm used to being the host, so I suppose I shall cut it and start talking. And then she just goes on. She this, just this monologues. This character has such a delightful, creeping hysteria about her the entire time that is delightful. She is really, really great. And then Mr. Body arrives. Mr. Body, you say? Who is this Mr. Body? He is played by Lee Ving. Seriously, his name, Lee Ving. So our... A guy whose name is a pun is playing a guy whose name is a pun. Yes, his actual name. He was the frontman of the punk rock band Fear. And according to Jonathan Lynn's interviews... 
this was a casting that the studio really, really wanted. Apparently, I have never heard of the punk rock band Fear, but they had some sort of hit out at the time, and the studio thought it would be great marketing for the movie to have Mr. Leaving in Mr. Body's role. Jonathan Lynn didn't think he was quite the right casting for the role, but he had already said no to the studio on a whole bunch of stuff, so he said fine. That's hilarious because really, out of all, of all the cast, this guy is the weakest link. Yeah, he, he he doesn't seem quite right. He doesn't seem to fit exactly. And this is not against Mr. Leaving's Bing. talent or presence. He just seems like an odd fit. Yeah, especially with the rest of the cast and their auras. Very true. Well, he sits down and uh, Wadsworth says, you all got letters saying to come meet you here, did you? Yeah. Uh, Mr. Bot, did you get a letter? Yeah. Was it the same as theirs? No. Oh, your letter was different. Well, would anyone like fruit or desserts? And this kind of ends dinner and they head into the study. And we get... Mr. Body reacting to the fact that he is a prisoner in this house that he's locked in. He runs around, he gets to the conservatory, he sees the dogs. So it's set up pretty early in this film that Mr. Body, this is not his house, nor mm -hmm. does he fully seem to understand why he's there, which always seemed like a curious detail. Wadsworth has an envelope that says on it, Wadsworth, open after dinner. So either Wadsworth is still taking his orders from someone, someone who maybe owns this house or who isn't here right now, but it clearly isn't Mr. Body or Wadsworth possibly has written himself this note. And I, Just a I don't know. Note so to this self, is going to be like, one of oh. the... Oh, oh, after dinner. That's yeah, that's when I want to. That's definitely when I'm going to read all these things after dinner. I want to be careful about that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So we get this reveal that everybody is being blackmailed for variant things. Uh, yeah. Professor Plum, I believe, had his license removed because he had sex with with a patient. Yeah. You know. Mrs. Peacock's husband accepts bribes. He's a politician. And Scarlet has been accepting is a, bribes. Scarlet is a, one of Leslie Ann Warren's finer moments in this movie. Everyone says, are, are you, we're all being blackmailed for something we didn't do. Scarlet says, I'm not. What, you didn't do it? Oh, no, I did it. But I'm being blackmailed, too. She's just yeah. so proud of the fact that she's a madam. She's like, oh, no, I'm being blackmailed. I just did what I'm being blackmailed for. And you're like, that a girl. She's like, yes, okay, very so awesome. She runs a escort service also known as a brothel or a house of ill repute that <laughs> hooks up ladies with mostly political figures so that she can have leverage over them in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. We get the idea that Mrs. White has perhaps murdered several of her previous husbands. The uh, Yes, the first was found beheaded, uh, both the beheaded and I believe castrated. Yes. And, and the first husband, one of the best exchanges in the film, like your first husband disappeared, too. That was his job. He was an illusionist, but he never reappeared. He wasn't a very good illusionist. Yes. <laughs> this is why it has all of the best lines. How many yes. husbands have you had? Mine or other women's? <laughs> then she's had five previous husbands of her own, I guess. And a lot of them seem to be no longer. So she, she might 
be a little bit of a serial killer in and of herself. There you go. Then Mr. Green, he decides to unmask himself, if you will, or out himself, if is another way of putting it, and declare that he is a homosexual, as this movie declares, and that he has to hide that. Uh, He's not ashamed of that fact, but if the public knew, he would lose his job at the State Department for security reasons, because the 50s. Yeah, which would have been true in the 50s. We have a couple of the people that react to that with surprise and sort of look at the paperwork that they have for him. This could just be homophobic comedy, but there also is the curious idea here that this might not have been information that Wadsworth had on him hmm. um, because he himself looked surprised by that I, information. I always noticed Wadsworth, like, yeah, it could be interpreted as he's surprised to hear this news or he's just like, oh, well, he, he kind of cut to the chase there. If had a whole yeah. thing prepared and he just said it. OK, fine. So with the different endings, there is this curiosity here of why is Mr. Green there if it is ending C? How did he get in and how did he get on this list? If that is not what Wadsworth has him for being blackmailed for, what does he have him being blackmailed for? I've always been kind of curious about that. And then we will later learn that Colonel Mustard is being blackmailed because he's a war profiteer. So all of these kind of political Washington, D.C., I guess White's relationship to Washington, D.C. is her dead husband is a nuclear physicist. So not the illusionist, but the most current dead husband Mm -hmm. was a nuclear physicist. So all of these things are starting to look very political. They all have ties to Washington, D.C. This is communist red herring number two that a lot of these people look like they might have been working on I will top be secret government projects. If you can keep track of how many red herrings there are for communism in this movie, I tried because <laughs> my favorite thing about this movie is that it's set in the fifties during the McCarthyism panic. So I was I was looking out for the those communisms or red herring. Oh boy. Um, and we get the reveal after all of these details are revealed, we finally, finally get the shocker, Mr. Body. They ask, what is he being blackmailed for? Oh, you don't know? Mr. Body is the one blackmailing all of you. Dun, 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 dun. dun, dun. <laughs> we get some really bad physical comedy from Mr. Leaving. This is why I say he is the weakest link of this cast. Because everyone else, their physical comedy is on point the entire film. But they kind of wrestle with him a little bit, shove him around, and his reactions to this are just really odd. He mugs for the camera in a way that... If you were trying to make a toddler laugh would be appropriate. But for this, it just doesn't work at, at all. But after they scuffle with him a little bit, sit him down, Wadsworth says like, OK, look, the police are on their way. You need to come clean and then he will have nothing on you. Mr. Body, he has a different plan. He has some deluxe wrapped boxes. Great aesthetic choices. There are all these black boxes with these purple ribbons that he hands out as gifts to his blackmailed not guests. So this was another curious thing. It's like, you were invited to this dinner. Did you know it was with the people you were blackmailing? Because you brought them these gifts of weapons. He does. He definitely doesn't look surprised when he arrives to dinner and sees everybody. So this may have been something he was planning, or he maybe he just didn't look surprised because the actor didn't know how to look surprised. 
Well, maybe he does just always travel around with pre-wrapped murder <laughs> weapons in his trunk. Because you never know when you're going to need a good hostess gift, right? So he's like, they're well, like, I have oh. six of these in my trunk, so I'll just bring them all out and I'll hand them out. Good luck. I brought six of these things and there's six people here. Really good. The last time there were seven. That was awkward. So he he brings out these pre-wrapped gifts and it is another one of those moments of just sort of genius homages to the game where they all open up to these close up shots of the weapons lying within their their silk supports within these boxes. And we get the classic six. So Scarlet gets the candlestick, green gets the lead pipe, white opens the rope, mustard gets the wrench, peacock gets the knife, and plum gets the revolver. And they're just going to be sitting there with these weapons. <laughs> like, well, what are we supposed to do with all these? And Body tells them, look, if the police come for me, you are all going to be exposed. I will see to that in the courts. However, we can all pretend like this never happened if one of you kills Wadsworth right now and then shuts off the lights and we hear kind of a grunt a thud a, sh a, a gasp a, a gunshot goes off and miss peacock turns the lights back on and mr body is dead maybe on the ground no visible wound or trauma but we we've heard the impact of all of these possible weapons so any weapon could have been the murder weapon as it could be in the game we also get another weapon homage when Peacock goes over and she's just going to drink what looks like Manischewitz Kool-Aid. It's very, very red. I noticed this at dinner, too, that they're drinking this just really bright red drink. And someone yells, oh, no, maybe it's poisoned. And she screams and she drops it. Poison apparently was one of the original potential murder weapons that was then later sort of streamlined and taken out to the We'll talk six. about that a little so bit more later on. It's kind of a it's a fun little sort of shout out and the poison theme will come up again and again. But poison also possibly this ambiguous murder object, weapon, whatever that could be in the room. And we also have the little homage to and Wadsworth at some point within the scene is going to yell out when somebody says what's going on he's like that's what we're trying to find out we're trying to find out who killed him and where and with what <laughs> wadsworth explains the game yes just thesis statement right delightful stuff lots uh lot, lots of running around uh yvette is screaming they have to go in and check on her there's something going on with the cook they have to go in and check on them yeah so we find out the cook's dead she was stabbed yeah. somehow then oh, and then at one point, back. Mr. Body has just vanished. Mr. Body's gone. They look around for him. Now he's been killed a second time and somehow ended up in the bathroom and then fell out into the hall. So we've got bodies sort of starting to drop like flies already. Then we're bringing all the bodies back into the main room and our core rainbow cast sort of demands to Wadsworth, we need to know what happened, right? What are we doing here? What's your angle? And he explains that he, too, was being blackmailed by Mr. Mm. Body, that he was previously Mr. Body's butler. And he knew that Mr. Body found them all to be thoroughly un-American. And so he was going to blackmail them all for their thoroughly un-American, unpatriotic deeds that they had been up to. 
And they ask, well, if he knew about all of our misdeeds, why not just go with the police? Well, Mr. Body thought he would take all the information and make some money off of it. What could be more American than that? And it's Peacock's little sort of nod of assent where she's like, yeah, it was just so great there. Another Makes really sense. great Makes Eileen sense, Brennan yeah. sort of moment. But then he reveals that the un-American tie that he has is that he had a wife who has since committed suicide over the blackmail that she endured and his delivery of my wife had friends oh. who were socialists. Socialists. Everybody just gasps like this is the worst possible thing that he could have said. And he just so, is almost sobbing as he says, well, we all make mistakes. This is communism red herring number three. <laughs> number three. Number three, ladies and gentlemen. This has been communism hearing number three. Everyone is being blackmailed for their un-American ways, so it sort of seems like we're setting up for, okay, well, who was the most un-American? He also mentions that Mr. Body was threatening to turn her into the House Un-Americans Activities Committee, also known as HUAC. This mm-hmm. actually was a real committee founded yes. in 1938 and ran through 1975. It this, was was, a, this was more or less McCarthy's thing, right? This one actually wasn't as tied to McCarthy. So no. they kind of founded this independently, I believe. I, I want to say it was a Roosevelt thing that he put into place. And Interesting. So they huh. worked with McCarthy a little bit, but this was already in place before McCarthyism sort of jumped into the I always fray. kind of figured they were one and the same, but that's, that's nice to know. Yeah. So we've got we just got a whole bunch of communism stuff going on right here. <laughs> Anti-communist stuff. All right. The doorbell rings. Yeah. Well, they're about to, for the sake of safety, uh, they've locked away all the weapons. They put them into a cupboard and to be safe. Wadsworth says, OK, I'll throw the key out the out the front so that none of us have it. And we don't have to worry about one of us because they don't know who the murderer is yet. We don't have to worry about one of us taking the weapons. Goes to throw it out the front door and opens the door. And oh, dear God, there's there's just some guy out there. He's a motorist who says my car broke down and I don't want to be any bother. We just need to use your phone. I'll just say where we are and go back to the car. We don't <laughs> want to be any worry. Exactly. There are like a few connections here. I don't think they're intentional, but things that I can't help but think of Rocky Horror Picture Show mm-hmm. when I see this movie. Yeah, there are a whole bunch of just old dark house kind of things. And this was a genre that was really getting revitalized in the 1980s in general. There was a whole bunch of just kind of creepy big house on the hill movies. Mm -hmm. And that tends to be a trope. Yeah, somebody showing up in the rain and and knocking on the door to use the telephone. Another quaint 1950ism where they let him. Yeah. Cell phones aren't a thing, so come on in. <laughs> also, stranger danger, not quite a thing yet. I Very think true, yeah. There are time periods we go in and out throughout American history of whether mm. or not it would be a common practice to let some stranger who shows up on your porch asking for the phone to let them into the house or not. I think in the 1980s, we're beginning the stranger danger discourse, and we're also beginning this idea of the silent suburban threat of the serial killer and whatnot. So I don't think it would have necessarily been as common in the 1980s to let somebody into your house to use the phone. For sure. And again, if you were in a mansion with a group of 15 adults, that might be a, a safer yeah. time to let some guy into your study. To I've use got my crew phone, here. But... This one guy isn't going to fuck with me. It's like, well, we already have a serial killer on the loose within the mansion. So what the fuck is this dude going to do, right? Like that ship has sailed. So, yeah, we'll, so we'll let the motorist in. The motorist comes in and they lock him into another room where he tries to make a call. 
Yes, I believe they lock him into the lounge, I believe. This movie does pay very close attention to the location of the rooms mm -hmm. as they are on the game board. And they yes. set them up in that kind of parallel way within the sort of layout of the set. And they're also going to later have the secret passages connect to the correct rooms on the board, which are also kind of cool. So we really have this board layout. So I believe he comes in and he heads to the left, the first room to the left. So I think that puts him in the lounge. Mm -hmm. So, yes, he goes to the lounge and then Mr. Body is still in the study, right? That's where they store them is in the study. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because the kitchen and the study are connected. So that's how right, that murder right. gets. And then the conservatory leads to the lounge. So, yeah, he's in the he's in the lounge right now. <laughs> Well, this, this point, is important stuff, guys. Important there, stuff. Yeah, it, it sounds like we're kind of running down on these details, but this will matter later on. <laughs> uh, there's some confusion about how many people that there are in the house. There's just a hilarious back and forth between Mustard and Wadsworth about whether or not there's someone else in the house. Miss White nearly goes crazy and starts breaking things <laughs> in frustration. And they decide, well, we need to split up and search the house, which... Real okay, yeah. I think this trope was brought to a head with Kevin in the woods, where they said like, "We need to split up and search the place." Guys, I think we should split up. Really? really? <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is this is the I think we should split up into pairs moment, and so they're going to cut the matchsticks and have them all pair off. All of these setups are intentional in terms of okay, which ones could maybe produce the most comedy to be paired off together. Prior to this, Yvette is going to, with her heaving bosom, right, say, but I'm so scared. Will someone go with me? And, of course, Plum and Colonel Mustard are like, I will, I will. And then Green just kind of looks over and is like, no, thank you. <laughs> so Green's the one person that was just like, nah, man, not, not into those boobs. And so he gets paired off with her anyway, so she cannot use her sex appeal on him. Peacock and Plum. So we've got the very conservative woman and this very lecherous dude that get paired off together to search the cellar. We get Wadsworth and White searching the upstairs. And that's sort of comical because prior to this pair off, Wadsworth has that exchange with White where she suggests that he should be alone with her sometime. And he replies, Madam, no man in their right mind would be alone with you, ever <laughs> alone with you. And so in the next scene, he's going to be alone with her. And so is he's very terrified aware. the entire time. Yeah, he's very aware, well aware of the danger he might be in. And then Mustard and Scarlet are going to take the main floor. And we will learn at some point that Scarlet as a madam has had mustard as a client. And so she kind of yes. knows the leverage. And so he's very squeamish and skittish around her. So these are going to be the pairings. And they're going to keep saying ladies first every time they're going to go search something. And m most people sort of acknowledge this as a tip of the hat once again to the game design in which Miss Scarlet always rolls first in the game and the instructions say that ladies go first so another, another little game moment. Very nice very nice. This is a part of the movie where most reviews I read for it that were written at the time state that the middle of the movie is very slow and that's like one thing I will begrudgingly kind of agree with. This is still like really good stuff. We get a lot of great comedic work from our actors, but it is mostly just scenes of them walking around rooms slowly without much else happening. Yeah, it doesn't 
take up that much screen time though i think all in all this might only be about eight minutes yeah it really yeah it is like a short amount of time in the movie i think just compared to all the fast dialogue of the earlier scenes and then Mm -hmm. like what's going to come later on this is the one part of the movie that just feels very slow paced in contrast to the beginning and end of the movie. And I understand that critique of the film. There are other critiques of the film from the time that I do not at all understand. Like they say, like, this is so poorly written. What the hell are you talking about? Yeah, this, this is tight. But no, that's fair. It is a little bit more dragging, I guess, yeah. in, in a way with the, the two by twos. However, this is also where we get a bunch of communism red herrings (laughs) how many communism red herrings are we up to right now london i think we're up to three but in the background we're gonna get four and five so as they're exploring the (laughs) landscape there might be more it becomes sort of a where's waldo of the soviet propaganda variety to try to spot within the scenes or in the uk where's wally exactly either one maybe he's off playing cluedo somewhere he might be with those goddamn communists. At some point, we're going to have Colonel Mustard find the torch on the shelf or whatever, and there's a hammer and sickle on the shelf next to that torch. Oh. And so <laughs> we've got that ideology. So you're like, hey, communist red herring. If you're looking in the background for communist spotting, so that's communist spotting number four that I found. And then in the attic, there's a bust of Lenin. Oh. So that's communism <laughs> red herring number five. <laughs> Not catch so, that. I'm thinking there's probably a whole lot more that, like I said, it is this sort of I spy tapestry of communist and Soviet symbology, but those are the two that I noticed as they were searching the house, the main ones that really stood out, because uh, it's just hilarious. They uh-huh. have just this, yeah, recurring theme when, they, when they'll when they say later about the communism. It really was packaged in there the whole way through. Uh, communism. Elsewhere uh, on... Route, route, route 41, a police car drives by, notices the motorist's deroded car, checks it out, and he heads off somewhere. Meanwhile, the motorist is very nervous because, hey, man, I'm, I'm a little freaked out. There's all these people having a party here, and one of them is my old boss from... Yeah, suspense. Someone has killed the motorists. Mm-hmm. Another body down. Body down. Motorist down. This is around the time that Mustard finds the secret passage and that he and Scarlet find the dead motorist. And chaos ensues because they are locked in this room with the dead body, which at this point you think would become a little bit more passe. Is that really that shocking to you guys? You've, You've encountered two dead bodies already tonight. But they start screaming and pounding on the door and the others come running. Wadsworth cannot find the key to the door. Uh, So Yvette says, like, hang on a second, I got this. Runs in to the study where the cabinet is opened, grabs the gun, shoots the door, and also accidentally shoots, I think, the chandelier as well at one point. Yeah, so she's just shooting guns all over the place. Not the greatest aim, but at the same time, a really sharp aim because she knew right on that door where to shoot the locks out. Yeah. So... Another character with some potentially hidden layers. She also seems to just know that that uh, weapon cabinet was going to be open for her. So that's another curiosity. We shall discuss that a bit more later on, for sure. Uh, the chandelier is down. And then at around the same time, the policeman shows up. So it's just like, well, this is a stressful, this is a stressful couple of things for They've got crew. a whole bunch of stuff going on, but the chandelier falling. So the chandelier is a stunt where it's going to fall right behind 
Colonel Mustard and almost sort of take him out, as mm-hmm. it were. And this is going to happen again as well as sort of a coda on at least one of the endings. I don't know if the second chandelier falls on all of the endings or just the one where it kind of freeze frames. Mm. But these were stunts, apparently, that the director was very hesitant to do. He was very worried because uh, Jonathan Lynn took over directing this for John Landis, who stayed on as a producer. While this was in filming, John Landis was in the middle of his 1983 kind of wrap up trial for the deaths of actors on Twilight Zone with stunts going wrong. And Lynn was hyper, hyper concerned that any of his actors not get hurt. One, because that had just recently happened in Hollywood. And two, because he he cared about John Landis and he didn't want another production that was associated with his name having actors getting injured especially while he was in the middle of these lawsuits. And so the care with which stunts were done on this film and also the limited number of stunts on this film became a a restriction, a self-imposed restriction because of the trials that were going on. So that makes a lot of sense. It does. And I found that really interesting because it does sort of just show how outside stuff that's happening can really affect the production of a film. Although that being said, there is also this fun little story that Martin Mull told about this moment where the prop master, I guess, really liked to play practical jokes on set. He was kind of a prankster and was able to act drunk really, really well, which Martin Mull found out. Let's see. The direct quote was the prop master who is in charge of having the thing drop also does, I guess, a very, very good drunk. He came up to me right before we were going to do the thing, acting quite a bit tipsy and said, God, I hope this goes all right. Scared the shit out of me. I thought, oh, no, no, no. This is no way to go out. And so apparently that that succeeded to just freak the shit out of uh, poor Martin Mull right before the scene was the prop master acted like he was super drunk before dropping a chandelier on his head. So we've got the, the severity of the death trials going on with the juxtaposition of this sort of prankster prop master. So... I will never watch the chandelier scene the same way again after those two facts. Now I know. But anyway, then the cop shows up. The cop shows up. Just checking on the car that was down the road. Needs to use the phone. And we have an awesome moment where Wadsworth says, oh, you can use the phone in the, um, uh, in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, the library, the library phone. Yeah. It's like what room still has a phone and no corpses and they settle (laughs) on the library. So they shove him off in there. It's going to be curious later for people where we find that this cop has connections to some of them, all of which have come in from Washington, D.C. He's on Scarlett's payroll from Washington, D.C., and yet he's a cop in Massachusetts. Well, he says he's not on duty at one point later on. So did he follow them all the way out? Was he invited? Is that... I think that later on in the endings, it's kind of hinted that he was told to come up there deliberately. Mm Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. I guess everybody else was. So, yeah, it's a little ambiguous, I think, as it needs to be, because you have to introduce this character with some ambiguous details that could be applied to three different Mm -hmm. endings, which includes when he comes in, he sees a vet and he tells her, don't I know you from someplace? So that really supports the Scarlet connection. If you vet also works for Scarlet. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, that, that all tracks. Okay, so long as it's tracking. We're good. 
Yeah, this, this film can't have any plot holes, heaven forbid. <laughs> okay, well, anyway, he's locked in there, takes a call. He's like, why is Jedgar Hoover on your phone? And Wadsworth is like, he's on everyone else's phone. Why wouldn't he be on mine? <laughs> because it is a Jared legit Graver. question, though, because this still remains a very confusing moment for me as to why J. Edgar Hoover <laughs> would be calling in any of the endings proposed. But why, yeah, why J. Edgar Hoover himself? Certainly he had a lackey who could be making these calls, but... Yeah, that's also, just how... if you have an FBI plant, whether it's Wadsworth or whether it's Mr. Green... You shouldn't call your undercover agents. Kind of blows the cover there, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, from the FBI. Like that's a yeah, that just doesn't quite work for me. But we've got the Hoover call, and then Curry's going to take the Hoover call so that the cop can go and ask to look around. He just wants to see what's up. So Green takes him on the tour and saves the rooms with the bodies in it for last. He's going to get led into the room, the study first. And the first thing we're going to see is Mrs. White just on top of Mr. Body <laughs> with his head physically just still bleeding as she's really going for it. Their lips yeah. are connected. This is some this is some really grateful on first base necrophilia that's happening mm. right here. This is a section of some just great physical comedy from all of the cast uh, when they're trying to animate the bodies around them into people that they're making out with or or that they're sleeping or anything. It's, it's just it's some good work. Good work from everybody around. Yeah. So everybody's going to be sort of making out with some corpses. Wadsworth comes out of his call with J. Edgar Hoover, runs into the cop. And the cop just says, everything's fine. You guys look like you're having a great old time. And Wadsworth tries to explain. I, I can explain. Oh, there's no need to. America's a free country. I know he's that free because he's still <laughs> thinking that he's come across some bodies. But this is, this is America. This is not communism. We Land can make free. out with corpses. Oh, boy. The, yeah. the chandelier is cleaned up. They look around the kitchen a little bit more. There's a great moment where an ironing board hits Colonel Mustard. It's hilarious. They find a new secret passage and suddenly the lights go out. And our poor cop who's been trying to finally make his telephone call gets left in the dark without a phone. He gets a lead pipe to the skull. The uh, singing that, telegram girl shows up. Uh, she gets shot. She gets uh, shot. Played by... In Jane okay. Wildlin, best known as the rhythm guitarist of the Go-Go's, by the way. So another musician just making this, a little appearance. Look at this, bragging at this name drop of the Go-Go's. <laughs> yeah, you know, because I have such connection to the Go-Go's. I don't know who these fucking people are. Yvette is killed off when she walks into a room and begins speaking in not a French accent. And uh, she's asked by a indistinguishable whispering voice. Do they do they know what's going on? Oh, that's like, oh, yeah, they recognize me. All right. This is a problem. Oh, my God, it's you. And a uh, noose goes around her neck. And uh, that's now dead. Yes, that's gone. So uh, all the bodies, it's just kind of great. They just start really escalating. It's an exponential body drop here <laughs> in these sort of five minutes. At some point, we get this great moment where... They do open the door because everyone sort of says, I think I heard the door slam. Maybe the murderer got out. They open the door. They look down at the corpse of this sort of young girl. Tim Curry is sort of like three murders. And then I think it's Green that says, 
six altogether. And then Curry responds with, this is getting serious. The sixth one, that's where we draw the severity of serial murder. It's just, all right, well, I guess if it's more than three, we've gotten to six, and yep. this is getting serious. And this is where the energy of this movie really picks back up again, and Wadsworth begins to say, I know who did it, and I'm going to explain who did it. And this is where Tim Curry just gets to shine like few others can, and just yeah. begins with such a crazy amount of energy. To explain everything, I must take you through the events of the evening and then begins to recap the movie for them <laughs> running from room to room with everyone just having no choice but to run after him, too, from spot to spot. We get Wadsworth explain the, you know, Mr. Buddy's death, how someone had to switch the keys. We get more information about Colonel Mustard, where he was working on fusion bombs and that awesome exchange. Wait, how did you know I was working on the fusion bomb? Can you keep a secret? Yeah, so can I. Communism oh. red herring number six. <laughs> yes. Uh, we reveal that Wadsworth invited the motorist. The motorist was actually Colonel Mustard's driver. The cop was on Scarlet's payroll. The telegram girl was one of Professor Plum's patients. But the question still remains, how did the murderer know everything? And uh, we get the final uh, guest for the evening when the doorbell rings. And it's an evangel evangelicus. It's a guy who preaches that the kingdom of heaven is coming and Armageddon is on the way and they're all like, Armageddon is here, man. You need to get out of this house because you're going to die if you come in here. I just love that Mrs. Peacock calls him a beatnik. Oh, beatnik. Yeah, like what an odd beat. <laughs> he's, yeah, it seems like such an odd choice because he's this clearly older man who's clutching a Bible and talking about Armageddon. And she's like, Armageddon's already here, you beatnik. And she uh, just pushes him out of the door. Super so strange. And to wrap up his account of the evening, Wadsworth then says, and then the power went out and switches off the power. It's at this moment that the light's going off, this is kind of the split off moment. He's now created three alternate universes, three or four alternate mm -hmm. universes, uh, where we get different explanations for what just happened. Which I remember like when I was younger watching this, I could never quite get what the cutoff point was. And it, I think it was only in this most recent rewatch, I began to zero in and I'm like, oh, oh, it's when the lights go out. OK, great. That's yeah. the cutoff point. Which is a really convenient editing technique, right? Yeah. So you cut to complete black and then you can match cut a black screen really easily. So right. that's that's a smart decision if you're going to have a cutoff point. Uh, would you like to explain ending number one? Okay, so ending one or ending A, it is in fact Miss Scarlet ultimately that's going to be our killer here. That Yvette has been working for Miss Scarlet all along, that she was one of her girls. And so Scarlet had her kill the cook, that she had her kill Mr. Body in the hall with a candlestick. And then Scarlet does everything else. She kills Yvette. She kills the driver. She kills the cop. She just she just kills all the guys. She just gets them in one full sweep at the end there. She just needed Yvette for the first two. And it's because her real business is secrets. And mm -hmm. so now she has implicated everyone there in a mass murder for the <laughs> evening. And each of them had reasons and motives stronger than hers to kill these people because they were all people that were linked to their blackmail, not hers. And so even though they don't have any money to pay her, she's planning on continuing to blackmail them with government secrets since they all have them during this 1950s 
nuclear atomic era. That is essentially going to be her motive and her ending, that Curry is going to accuse whoever still has the gun is the culprit. And of course, Miss Scarlet does have the gun there. And yeah, she's it's, it's all wrapped up. But was communism a red herring? Communism, as I think Scarlet explains yeah. in ending A, was just a red herring. <laughs> and this is going to be something that's repeated in all three endings. And it's great. But at the same time, communism is not entirely a red herring because it's the red scare and the threat of communism that is creating all of the need for secrecy in the first place. So I would posit that communism actually not a red herring. Communism is super essential to the unfolding of this movie, but <laughs> the perpetrator themselves did not necessarily have links to the Soviet or the socialist or the Communist Party, because even Scarlett herself would say, I, like many in my oldest profession, am a capitalist, and I'm planning <laughs> on selling your secrets to the highest bidder. I almost said the safe word there, but... Oh, oh well, you said capitalist. That's yeah, different. That's that's, different that is different. Wadsworth overpowers her. I believe, because we have, we have that wonderful exchange of, there are no more bullets left in that gun. She's like, what? No, they... Yes, there are. There's one before. There's one then. There's two then. Like, well, that's one plus one. It's it's a, I won't I can't do it justice because it's so beautifully rapid fire and back and forth. But it's mm -hmm. it's just great stuff. He gets her police come in and the cops arrive. Turns out the beatnik, the beatnik, uh, if you want to call him that from before, was a part of the cops that were meant to arrive. The day is saved. Wadsworth says, see, there are no bullets left in here pulls the trigger, shoots at another chandelier. It falls behind Colonel Mustard. He is shocked and freeze frame. Yes. And then we have her apologizing, of course, to Wadsworth for almost shooting him and his response. Oh, <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> Frankly, Scarlet, I don't give a damn. Little gun with the wind <laughs> like, reference. Uh, not at all necessary, in. but it is a delight to hear Tim Curry say that line. <laughs> not necessary and yet completely necessary. Ending number two. <laughs> Lights come back on. Wadsworth explains that whoever killed Body also had to kill the singing telegram girl. And then we get a reveal that earlier in the evening, Mrs. Peacock mentioned that uh, the cook was serving her favorite dish and that monkey brains, while normal in Cantonese cuisine, are not normally to be cooked in Washington, D.C. So this tells us that Miss Peacock has a connection to the cook who she murdered. Yes. And communist red herring <laughs> to the Cantonese cuisine connection because she has foreign contacts. The Red Scare. Because I think... Chen was starting, or the Cantonese cuisine it, would have been linked to another upcoming communist party in Chen at the not, time. Not, not that any three of these endings are bad. I always thought this was kind of the weaker one. Oh, this this ending notoriously really doesn't make a whole lot <laughs> <Yeah>. of narrative <laughs> sense. And I think it also suffers from the fact that it just gets sort of shoved in the middle there where there are it's really just kind of a five minute quick thing that we don't really get the full explanation in the way that yeah. Scarlet sort of says, I'm going to use 
all of this stuff to get secrets. Like I have a, a discernible motive. We're not really given that with Peacock. We're not told this is exactly your motive. And this is why you killed all these other people involved in this in a way that wasn't really related to you. We just don't get that explanation. We yeah. just get Peacock did it because she had connections to the cook. And now she's going to go outside and get arrested. because She's a mad woman. The only redeeming thing about this ending is it is the ending that has them all singing a round rendition oh. of For She's a Jolly Good Fellow. <laughs> like really creepy too. Come on, everyone. Let's sing for her. For she's a jolly good fellow. For she is a jolly good fellow. And Madeline Kahn's voice just in the background <laughs> rising above the rest. It's, it's such a great little rendition. We so that, really have not that talked enough about Madeline Kahn in this movie. She is just phenomenal. We really get her most phenomenal moment in the third ending and what I think is the best ending of this movie. Ending C. This is so, I, I always like call this the Agatha Christie ending because this is where we find out who did it. Did one which one person did it? Oh, not one person. They all did it. Yes. So we're going to have Peacock killed the cook because the cook was her informant, which we know because she was cooking her favorite dish. Mustard uh, killed the motorist because he was his old driver. White killed Yvette because Yvette was having an affair with her husband. And let me ask you something, London. Did White hate Yvette? She hated her so much <laughs> that flames, flames off the side of my face, heaving, heaving breaths. Oh, Yvette God. I love it. Every time go into this amazing, amazing diatribe. And this is the one moment in the film that is improv. Jonathan Lynn apparently is very well known as one of those directors and screenwriters that does not really like anybody to diverge from the script. Mm -hmm. And in the script, it said something here about Mrs. White explains that, you know, I hated her so much. I killed her. Madeline Kahn just goes off into this wonderful little thing. And I guess they got multiple takes of her just going into these little rage oh spirals. And so the good. quote from Martin Mull's interview that I've been drawing a lot of his quotes from was that Jonathan is a by the book guy. And if it was written, that was the way we did it. For Madeline, of course, that's like telling Cicero not to speak. You know what I mean? <laughs> so she went on to improvise this break from the screenplay, and it was the one that Lynn allowed to stay in the movie because how could you not? Very but nice. it is the the best, the single best thing about this movie is that little little improv. We also find out, uh, yes, yeah, Scarlett killed the cop. Uh, she was bribing him to stay in business in Washington. And but he turned on her and was feeding those secrets back to body. Oh, you can't do that, man. You can't do that to Scarlett. And Wadsworth killed the telegram girl. Apparently. Yeah, which I'm, I'm still not exactly sure fully why. I guess just to tie up the loose ends. Uh, I guess so. Yeah, no witnesses. But Wadsworth has the gun. And Plum was the one who killed body. You yes, get that kind Plum of throwaway body, line. Like like, early, like, who did I kill? Yeah. Who did I kill? My butler. Yeah, that, that is also like that is the thing about this ending. The twist is Wadsworth is not the butler. Body was the butler, apparently. 
Uh, I never quite got that. How like? Yeah, because he didn't act like a butler, and you seemed genuinely trapped. Yeah, that so. is one arrogant butler. Uh, if that, if yeah, one sleazy little butler. Wadsworth just, like, explains like it was very kind of you to all kill off my informants, and I can continue to blackmail you. <laughs> and randomly, uh, Mr. Green, who has not apparently killed anyone, pulls out a gun and shoots Wadsworth. And we get just this. Tim Curry has this fantastic death scene where he falls over and holds his side and looks at the, the wound. He says, nice shooting, Green. Very nice. And the police rush in and Green informs them. When they ask who did it, he's like, well, they all did it. But if you want to know who killed Mr. Body, it was me in the hall with the revolver. So we get that culmination of the game ending. They have to name the person, the place and the weapon. Yeah, that that would be a great ending line to the movie. That would be a great, great way to end it. But um, that's not the ending line to the movie. The ending line to the movie is for no reason whatsoever. Mr. Green has to say, I'm going to go home and sleep with my wife. Credits. Freeze frame. Credits. Freeze frame. So, credits. Gonna yeah, shake a rattle and roll. We're going it's a to really shake. unfortunate, like no homo ending. Yeah. Although um, we do get the sense, I guess, logistically he would have been being blackmailed for a reason that the 1950s was a very bleak time for a lot of people. And there yeah. actually was a committee specifically set up by J. J. Edgar Hoover, actually, to try to identify homosexuals within the government in the 1950s. This was something that Hoover was really concerned by, which is kind of ironic given a lot of the later understandings of Hoover's own sexuality. So it might have been a little bit of some like self-loathing homophobia or something. I don't know. But I could see that we would, I guess, need to contextualize for this guy that even if Mr. Green's character is canonically gay in all three endings that he might have to sort of throw that in there so that he can continue to work for the FBI. True. And that's, okay. So as far as I'm concerned, Green is canonically gay because you cannot take that away from me. <laughs> but <laughs> I was like, no, maybe I refuse. The only thing I can maybe allow you is that he had to quickly counter correct so that he could continue to work in the FBI in the 1950s and have this sort of thing of, no, we have to continue to perform. I also just the the third ending is not necessarily my favorite ending, although I think it is a lot of people's. So oh, okay. I will ask you, what is your canonical ending? Um. Me, I, I kind of agree with most people who see this. This is I, I like this. I think it this works as the best ending because it does have that Agatha Christie like twist to it that everyone did it. And I like I like the twist of Wadsworth really having been in control the entire time. This one just provides like the most twists and turns. The uh, the first two are the, well, the first is really good. The second one is kind of the meh one. But I think this one just amps it up so much that it's really fun. Yeah, there is something fun. I'm a little torn because <laughs> the 
third ending, I do like that everyone got a chance to kill someone. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, I think that's that what it is. Like, everyone it. got to kill somebody. That's so cool. And that's close to what I would have ultimately liked to see, as I mentioned in the beginning. I would have liked to see the six different endings that were well thought out in the way that Miss Scarlet's ending was that could plausibly see the motive and reason as to why Miss Scarlet killed everyone, why Miss Peacock killed everyone, why Mr. Green killed everyone. It would have had to been a slightly different movie in its setup. It would have needed a little bit more sort of clues throughout to make that feasible. And then maybe even a seventh ending where they all did it. I (laughs) I would have loved that. So this comes close. The ending C comes closer to what I would have liked, which is giving everybody a chance to be a killer. Mm -hmm. And I think when I was younger, I did like that ending the best. But the last several times I've watched this movie, I find ending A to be the most satisfying narratively. And so when I'm looking for the different things that are set up throughout the movie, they really seem to be setting it up for ending A. Yeah. A lot of ending A kind of works in there at the cop recognizing Yvette from Scarlet's sort of stuff. The fact that Scarlet is the one that is near all of these passages at the time just before or just after the murders. There's just a lot of stuff that the kind of idea that she is doing this to gain more secrets to further the blackmail of these individuals really fits in with the 1950s theme of paranoia and secret keeping and also sets up the the Kipling quote at the beginning that it's the women that we need to fear (laughs) and that they're more dangerous and that Scarlett was right on board with that seemingly in a throwaway line but actually sort of yeah she'll eat anything and (laughs) so I do think that narratively ending A is is the tightest one and it makes the most sense and it's thematically the most satisfying for the 1950s theme And like I said, really doesn't actually have communism be that much of a red herring at all. And so that, yeah, that all just kind of really was satisfying to me. So ending A is actually my canonical ending, but with the flame speech looped in there somewhere, because you can't not have the flame speech. (laughs) That might be why ending C is the best one to me. And I think there are some reviews for it at the time that said, like, if you see this movie, figure out a way to see ending C because that's the best one, because it has Madeline Kahn having this glorious moment in the movie. And I do like that in each of the endings, you have one character saying, there's one thing I still don't get. And the other one responding. One thing. Exactly. So the movie seems to poke fun of itself in that regard, where it's like, yeah, we know we have a lot of plot holes here, right? It's it's based on a board game. There are a lot of plot holes in the board game as well. It's just people running around and piling up corpses. Uh, like That's all so this good. is. Well, there you go. That's Clue in a Nutshell. Yes. More or less. All right. So, London, this movie is famous for having three endings. But what if it had a fourth ending as well? A fourth ending, you say? A fourth ending. A fourth ending was scripted and apparently shot as well. The only way that we know about this are from two extra books that came out related to this movie. 
the, we know that this was in fact filmed because in a children's storybook version of Clue, there are still frames from this ending. But the children's storybook is very abridged and the text is very brief, so we don't really get a full grasp of like what exactly is going on. The way that we do get a full grasp of the text is from the novelization to this book. Um, I want to do something a little fun. You're on your computer. Can you go to Amazon.com really quick? All right, let's see. Amazon.com. Okay, do a search for Clue Michael McDowell. Probably butchered that spelling. All right, Clue by Michael McDowell. How much is that book? There is one used copy for $999.99 plus $3.99 shipping. <laughs> uh, well, that that that's a deal breaker for me. It's either free shipping or nothing with that. Yeah, right. Well, thankfully, I didn't have to do that. There is you can if you dig, you can find a PDF online of the novelization. The book itself, I look through it and it is more or less the movie. Uh, as I understand it, when movies are being not like there's a novelization tie in book being made of a movie, the writer, uh, in this case, Michael McDowell, is given as current a copy of the script as can be managed. And I went through it and it is more or less is the movie. There are a few like lines that are slightly different. Uh, the one that stuck out to me was when at the beginning of the movie, Colonel Mulster is told, you seem to drive a really nice car given your salary. And he says, I came into some money after the war when I lost my mommy and daddy. And this gave him a weird look because it's such an odd thing for a grown man to say mommy and daddy like that. And that turns out to be bullshit later on. But in the novelization, it's just slightly different where he says, I came into some money after the war when I lost my parents. And Wadsworth replies, Oh, how careless of you. Did you report them missing to the police? Like, haha, he lost his parents. Uh, the movie version is better. So in the book, it does have this weird moment where it, after Wadsworth turns off the lights again, it stops and it says, Dear reader, everybody knows the best part of any whodunit is trying to figure out who committed the crime before the author tells us all. You, near the end of the book with delicious anticipation, were you right? We have now reached that point in our story where we should reveal who perpetrated these dastardly deeds. But <laughs> the charm of Clue is derived in part from the many possibilities that exist for a solution to the puzzle. Was it Miss Scarlet or Professor Plum or Wadsworth or any of the others? So we have decided to make this more interesting for you, dear reader. What follows are four completely different solutions to the problem at hand. Which one did you expect? So right nice. away, it's telling you, like, OK, you're about to read through a few different endings. So we've seen the three endings that are in the movie. The fourth one is very different and is God, I can understand why they didn't include this, because it's really dark. So it starts off kind of the same way as the other three do. Uh, Wadsworth then says it was Peacock and Plum who did the killing and they are protesting it the entire time. And with your permission, I'm going to read a little bit here from the novelization. And did you uh, ask for my permission to do something? I'll, oh, the I'll, power. I'll, I'm going to edit that power. out. I'm no, you're not. Shut up. Put it back in. You know what? I'm just going to read it. OK, I'm just going to read it. <laughs> just right. saying precedent now. So he <laughs> um, there there's a, so he accuses them. They say they didn't do it. Wadworth says there's no other possible explanation. I think that there is, said Professor Plum, who looked to have been thinking fast. Slowly, he walked the length of the dining room, through the swinging door, and into the kitchen. The others followed curiously, and when they entered, they found Professor Plum staring at the recess of the cupboard that contained the secret passage. Wadsworth, he says. You knew about the secret passages, and when we drew lots, you held the matchsticks in your hand. You could have made sure Mrs. Peacock and I went into the cellar together. 
It's a frame-up, Mr. Green called out excitedly. No, it isn't, snarled Wadsworth. I'll tell you how we find out, said Professor Plum, calmly smiling. The gun's missing, right? Everybody turn out their pockets and purses. Whoever's got the gun shot the singing telegram girl. Wadsworth didn't hesitate. He instantly produced the gun from his pocket. Very clever, Professor. The others drew... The others drew back, aghast. You killed that girl? asked Miss Scarlet, braver and somehow offended by this murder more than the others. He killed all of them, Professor Plum said quietly. He did? cried Mr. Green. Of course, said the professor. Who knew every detail about us? Who brought us all here? And Mr. Body and all the victims? Who had the key to the cupboard with the weapons? But, Colonel Mustard broke in suddenly, he said the cook was murdered when we were all standing in the library doorway with a vet, so it couldn't have been Wadsworth. He was there besides me. But I was lying, Wadsworth said, smiling smoothly. That's not when she was murdered. I killed the cook earlier on, when Mr. Body was on the floor in the study, and you were all clustered around him. It took no time at all. You see, as Professor Plum realized, I knew about all the secret passages from the study to the kitchen. Well, the police will be here any minute, said Mrs. White. You'll never get away with it. Why should the police come? Wadsworth asked. No one's called them. Oh my God, of course not, cried Miss Scarlet with sudden, terrible realization. Why did you do it? asked Mrs. White. Would you believe me if I said it was to rid the world of an appalling blackmailer and his disgusting informers? No, said Mr. Green. And you'd be quite right. No, all my life has been spent in a struggle for perfection. I tried to be the perfect husband, but my wife killed herself. I strove to be the perfect butler, but I was driven to killing my employer. So I resolved that, in doing so, I would commit the perfect murder. But there is no pleasure in my triumph without an audience to admire it. And, as none of you had the brains to expose me, I decided I must expose myself. Good God, man, cried Colonel Mustard. There are ladies present. But you didn't commit the perfect murder, Professor Plum pointed out. There are six witnesses to your confession. Not for long, Professor. When the police eventually get here, they'll find twelve bodies and no explanation. Twelve? said Mrs. Peacock. There's only six. Wadsworth laughed the laugh of a maniac, a cheerful maniac at that. The champagne was poisoned. If you don't get an antidote in three hours, you'll die. All of you. And I'm leaving now and locking you in. He flung himself through the door into the hall. He ran its length, threw himself into the study, and ripped the telephone cord from the wall. There's no escape, he shouted. From here on, Wadsworth uh, then tries to leave. The beatnik show, the evangelical shows up again, uh, revealing himself to be the police. There's an odd moment where Wad he's cuffed. Wadsworth uh, is says, well, wait, I'll explain what everything that happened to you. And it's it seems as if he's about to do like the whole explanation thing again. But he just runs out the door and gets into a police car. Everyone else is like yelling at the policeman, like, take us to the hospital right now and give us an antidote. The ending of it is Wadsworth driving away, seemingly smug, like satisfied that he's done it. But then he realizes there are police cars in the back seat and they jump in and attack him in scene. Wait, there's what in the backseat? Police dogs. Oh, shit. So yeah. the the little dog setup from the beginning comes full circle? Kind of. In a way, it's like other dogs. But yes, that comes back into play. So I could see why they didn't want to use this ending just because it's so strange. Yeah. Also, and nobody wants to see Tim Curry get mauled to death by Doberman. Right. Yeah, that, that's that's weird. But the fact that not only it, it'd be one thing to say, like that Wadsworth killed, like did all the murders, but then also throw it on that he apparently means to kill six more people at the very end is that's a little bit much for what 
despite the murders, is a lighthearted comedy. Yeah, it does seem to take a tonal shift, I guess. <laughs> the the main characters that you care about are about to die, and then the one you really care about gets eaten by dogs. Yeah, and while I love the idea of Tim Curry laughing maniacally as he tells them the champagne is poisoned, it yeah, it's just it's too much of a of a tonal shift for this movie, I think. It actually was poison all along. The champagne was poisoned. <laughs> there is something great, though, about the idea that all of the core cast killed one of the the blackmailers. So yeah. everyone had a chance to be a murderer and then they all get murdered by the <laughs> butler. It's just a chain of uh, murder, the murder chain. But uh, yes, and apparently, yeah, this scene as far as I can tell, it was filmed, but, well, really, any I don't think any DVD or Blu-ray of this home video release of this movie has any had it much in the way of supplemental features. So I don't really know that we'll ever get to see this scene. No. So from what I found with interviews with the cast, the director himself does not remember what the original ending was. Oh, God. That he just sort of says, yeah, I think there was one. I don't really remember whatever. And then some of the cast remember filming parts of it. But I don't think the whole ending ever got fully filmed. Okay, so that would make sense uh, that like a few still shots of it were worked into that children's storybook. But. Yeah, because yeah. one of them remembered that it was something with the butler did it and the studios thought it was too obvious to have the butler did it as the answer. <laughs> and then another one, I think it was Mole who mentioned that he could kind of remember somebody got eaten by dogs. And that was when I was like, what? Um, so, yeah, apparently those are the two things that stuck out. But the cast don't really remember it very well either. As far as DVD supplementary material... Since the film has grown in popularity and sort of has amassed a cult following, Lynn has himself reached out to Paramount to offer to do a director's commentary to Clue years ago. But Paramount were like, nah, thanks, though. Um, and so the cast and crew were prepped and yet Paramount didn't really care. So there wasn't really a lot that's been put into this. Yeah, there's no special features on any of the DVDs. And part of this was, of course, the reception of the film when it came out. We mentioned the reviews. You're going to go into these reviews here in a second, probably. But one of the things that was really sad was that Jonathan Lynn did himself kind of get blacklisted from Hollywood for a little while. He was slotted already while he was doing Clue to be the director of Steve Martin's next upcoming film at the time, which was the Roxanne, the Cyrano de Bergenac. Movie. Oh, yeah. OK. And with Clue's bad reviews, he got pulled from the director of that oh, and sent back to England. So, London, I think it's time that we talked about something very important to you and me. Communism. Communism. Isn't it important to everybody, though? <laughs> the red herring of communism. You don't want to talk about the reviews first? I'll let you talk about communism first. Communism should always go first. All right. So it's not just communism, per se, that I, I want to talk about here. It's really just the use of the 1950s setting, the use of communism as a red herring. So the 1980s was a very special time in cinema where <laughs> high concept films became a thing that were just sort of all the rage. So 
What we mean by high concept, of course, is the things that have those short cinematic plots that can be summarized in one or two sentences. The modern Hollywood blockbuster, as it were, became a very popular sort of media format in 1980s cinema. And Clue fits into this a little bit in terms of its initial pitch, that it seemed like it was going to be high concept, but... Clue somehow does not become a blockbuster hit, right? It, it does it does not have that blockbuster feel. And so we, we can talk about that with the reviews when you get there. But another big thing that happened in the 1980s was a retro nostalgia for the 1950s. And so a lot of these films that were coming out in the 1980s are set in the 1950s. And some popular examples of this are going to be Grease is really going to frontline this. It came out in 1978, so it's not really an 80s film, but it is the precipice of the 80s set in this nostalgic 50s. Grease 2 comes out in the 80s, though. The Back to the Future franchise is going to be full of retro 50s nostalgia. Stand By Me, Dead Poets Society, Hairspray, Hoosiers, The Outsiders, Peggy Sue Got Married, Diner, Raging Bulls, Streets of Fire. Now there's one for us to do. And oh boy. then I've heard we of kind that. of culminate the 80s with Dirty Dancing, which is set in 1963, but it really focuses on the shift from the 50s into the sort of more liberal 60s. So yeah. there are these iconic films that come out of the 80s about this nostalgic ethos of the 50s. And we have to ask, OK, why right? were the 50s so popular in the 80s imagination? A lot of it has to do with the Reagan era, not exclusively, but a lot of it does that we have this return to conservative values, to traditionalism, to this sort of fear of foreign markets. So there's a lot of stuff and it's the tail end of the Cold War still. So there's a lot of things happening in the 80s that were politically and economically reflexive of the early atomic 1950s. And so a lot of filmmakers both kind of use the 50s as a critique of what was happening in the 80s to kind of say like, well, let's look at what happened in the 50s. We also have a lot of filmmakers that matured in the 50s or that grew up in the 50s, matured in the 80s and started doing films reflective of their childhoods. And so we get this kind of weird nostalgia, but mixed with criticism. And that kind of is what's happening here with Clue, is that we have a film that's coming out in the 80s, but the 80s is maybe not the best time period to set a murder mystery in a mansion. If this movie was coming out in 2020, 80s would be exactly the time <laughs> we would want to set a murder mystery in a mansion yeah. because the sort of post-millennium is really obsessed with the 80s for a lot of reasons that the 80s were obsessed with the 50s. But... As it stands right now in the in 1985, they're like, OK, we need a reason that this group of people would be blackmailed, would show up at a manor in the middle of Connecticut or Massachusetts when they're from D.C. and use aliases. And we need this kind of idea for the comedy that somehow murder is the furthest concern from their minds. And the 50s McCarthyism era becomes the perfect time to set this because you have this growth of the quote-unquote Red Scare, the second Red Scare in 1947. Joseph McCarthy, who's going to be the senator out of Wisconsin, is going to hit the scene, and he's going to start creating this kind of like blacklisting campaign of anybody who has ties to 
un-American ideals to any party other than the capitalist party are going to be sort of enemies of the state. And this kind of becomes comedically reflexive with our group of people who respond much more shocked and aghast at the idea that Curry's wife might have had friends who were socialists than the body that's on the floor in front of them. So it becomes this idea that somehow the worst possible crime that can occur is being un-American. It's not the you. murders. It's not the blackmail, right? They're willing to put up with the blackmail. They're willing to put up with the murders because the heightened issue here is that there might be some fundamentally un-American things at work in the form of communism or socialism or all the things that like the Red Scare kind of encompasses. So this idea, yeah, of blackmail and secrets in the 1950s just becomes that perfect setting. It's also a fun little pun because you've got the red scare. And so it's a red herring. It's a red scare, red herring. So that's <laughs> that's always fun. And you also get this nostalgia point. So we've got the criticism of the secrecy and the un-American diatribe of the 50s. We also get the nostalgia where the 1950s are going to be the height of some of Agatha Christie's greatest housebound mysteries mm. that also tend to feature a lot of characters that were involved in World War II, that were nuclear physicists. I think it's is it in and then there were none that there's a nuclear physicist subplot. It's one of her big ones that one of the guys having worked on the uh, the bomb from the British side becomes a, a big sort of subplot. So we get a lot of non red herring communist subplots in Agatha Christie's work. So it's kind of a fun sort of <laughs> counterpoint to the stuff that the audience might have been used to with murder mysteries. And then you also have this idea that Clue came out in 1949. And so Clue very much came into its own in the 50s. So a lot of the children who grew up in the 50s had played Clue and were the first generation to do so. So it was kind of a, an homage there. But I will say that McCarthyism as a term has since become synonymous with the practice of making accusations of subversion or treason without proper regard for evidence, which also sort of becomes a fun way to think about this movie because everyone's going to be running around. They're not going to have any reason or rhyme or logic as to why they're accusing each other of certain crimes in certain rooms with certain weapons. But this is the McCarthyism ethos. You point fingers and you accuse and you become terrified and scared of that individual. So... Yeah, McCarthyism and communism, central theme and thesis, the glue that holds this movie together, red herring or not. The glue that holds clue. So very, very high concept in its own way, in the way that we like to mean it in the non-blockbuster way. It's, it's highly conceptual. There's a lot going on. Worlds upon worlds. Why do worlds. people hate it? Worlds upon worlds. So why do people hate this movie? Well, when I was going through the reviews for this thing, what I really began to get a sense for was that, one, critics at the time just didn't want to take this movie seriously because it was based on a board game. Anytime a movie comes out and it's based on the number one selling novel or based on the hit Broadway sensation, critics are like, OK, yeah, this is some good source material to work with here. Very nice. But this one, based on the hit board game, there wasn't a like every review I saw this, you could tell it was tainted with its association to the board game because almost every review mentions its source material in a negative way. So it has that going against it uh, to critics. 
And the other big thing that critics hate about it, and this is understandable, is the fact that there's no definite ending that they're being shown. Uh, it was very publicized that as a gimmick, they were going to send this movie out to theaters and random theaters would get a randomly different ending. Some theaters would advertise like this theater has movie A or ending A, ending B, ending C, whatever. But you, the only way to see multiple endings was to keep going to the movie, which I'm sure that some of the producers thought like, yeah, that's going to be extra bank for us. We are going to go and keep seeing this movie to see all the <laughs> endings. Well, that wasn't the case because this gimmick got eviscerated by the critics, which I would imagine led to this movie not seeing a very good box office. Critics just hated that as a concept. And understandably, yeah, only releasing one ending per theater is a pretty stupid gimmick. Movie gimmicks in the past often involve stuff like a skeleton flies to the theater during a scary movie or, you know, 3D or something. But the gimmick of denying everyone the full story, so to speak, is not a good gimmick. So, yeah, the movie. See, I like it. I love the concept. I, I can't think of anything more theater slash cinema of cruelty <laughs> than actually having the audience expectations set up that the ending might change because how many times have you watched a movie and there's just part of you in the back of your mind that's thinking maybe it'll be different this time <laughs> and it never is but there's always that sort of childlike hope that maybe if you don't like the ending to something there's a chance that it'll, it'll be different this time it's a little different but with this clue time. with clue it gives that to you there is a chance that it's going to be different this time and i can't really think of any other big movie that has ever done that that the ending shifts and changes. That's amazing. That, no, that that is a that that's a proper way to like look at it. From why is this movie cruel? That's why because it fucked with the audience in ways the audience would never have been never wanted to have been fucked with. So, yeah, I agree. And with also, that. when we say cruelty, or when people talk of the the theater of cruelty, cruelty in itself does not exclusively mean sadism. Cruelty is something that is going to displace the audience, unnerve the audience, or force them to confront the fact that they are watching a construction. Right. And the fact that we have these pieces that are put together and taken apart and sometimes stitched back together, sometimes you just get them singularly, you see the construction of the film. And that, in its essence, is a... A theater of cruelty experience. Absolutely. So. You're always made aware of the fact that you're watching a movie or seeing a play or what have you. You're never drifting off into fantasy land while you watch it. You have to be conscious of what is happening to you. And even if you do watch it, yeah, with all three endings, you're still being told this is three different endings to a movie. You have to be made aware of that. So the movie had that. That was one of the big reasons the critics did not hate it. Other criticisms of this film from contemporary reviews make no sense to me because they will say that uh, this is a great cast and they're wasted. And I thought, wasted? How? This this is like a character actor showcase. How the hell is the cast wasted? And or that the the writing itself is very lame or very lazy. And some this is some of the tightest writing I've seen in a movie. The, the back and forth action is so tightly written. And looking at it, this is a pattern I've noticed from movie critics, especially when it comes to comedy. If 
one part of a movie is really low, a critic is going to make the is going to feel that the rest of the movie is that low. Most movie critics cannot look at films in sections and say this part's really good, this part's not so good. Uh, this part is like kind of slow, but the rest of the movie makes up for it. That never seems to be the stance that movie critics, at least from this time period, were taking with films. I think because mm -hmm. the they were annoyed by the ending, or they felt that like one section was slow, then the rest of the movie was just like weak and boring. And that was the general consensus that came mm -hmm. out from critics at the time. And again, what really lent to this movie having like the poor box office, <laughs> box office performance that it did. Mm -hmm. And this is why I also brought up the fact that the blockbuster film was really coming into its own in the 1980s. It really set up an expectation, a certain narrative expectation. The clue itself does not uphold. It is not a box no. office blockbuster script. And so that's going to become even more just starkly odd to see in a movie theater in 1985. Even though on the page, it does read like a lot of comedies from that and earlier time periods. There's something a little Steve Martin in place. There's there's something a little airplane right there. These kind of slapstick comedies. And yet the delivery comes across as something completely different. There's something that's tonally happening here that is also unlike any of the comedies of the previous decade. Comedy really has the potential to age poorly or fall flat in its face from a different time period. But yeah, Clue just gets better for me every time that I watch it. And I think part of the draw of Clue is that unlike some movies, the pace at which the dialogue and clue goes by most of the really funny dialogue is just buried in it it just keeps going and you either pick it up or you don't and the movie doesn't fucking care if you get it <laughs> they're gonna give you puns about communism and the world health organization and the ethics of certain review boards and it's it's some layered comedy and you might get it on the first watch you might get it on the third you might never get it film doesn't care <laughs> <laughs> it's very true so now that leads us to i think our final pin that you wanted to discuss random cool shit about the production of clue all right so we mostly covered a lot of it throughout i found the it came up organically it came up organically said you know like banging earth a kit in an airplane laboratory okay so this concludes the part of the episode where we make a reference to community won't be the last time. No, it will not. Moving on. So <laughs> there were a couple of things that were just very interesting about the pre-production of this film in terms of who all tried to work on this movie. Uh, so John yes. Landis initially really wanted to do this film, and he sent the script to Tom Stoppard initially, asking him, hey, can you write a film script to this board game clue? And Tom Stoppard apparently gave it the old college try. He he was working on it for a little while and then eventually had to give everything back. He even gave the money back that he had initially been forwarded, saying, nope, can't do it. I've, I've tried. I don't know how. Stopper, he's so, a classy guy. <laughs> yeah, Tom Stoppard was like, uh, wipe my hands with this. I'm out. Sorry, guys. And so then the next thing that John Landis tried to do was take it to Stephen Sondheim. I don't know why he was going for all of, once again, the theater thing. He was going for these playwrights, which is kind of interesting. He wasn't going for Hollywood scriptwriters. He was going for playwrights. It's, musical playwrights. Yeah, like Sondheim. Was this going to be Clue the Musical? I don't know. Is, this, is um, that a thing? It could be. Huh. 
Note to self, look up Clue the Musical. Anyway. Oh, no, they have since done a musical based off of Clue. I knew it. Yes. Okay, okay. That makes There's sense. a professional troupe out of Los Angeles that did end up putting that on. But, yeah, the movie version initially, whether it was ever going to be a musical, I don't know. But he gave it to Sondheim. And Sondheim wanted too much money. And so he's like, nah, I'm going to go somewhere else. Who would be your next logical person? If you can't get Sondheim, who do you go to? Uh, Author C. Clark? Uh... And obviously the backup to Sondheim is Anthony Perkins, the star Norman? of Psycho. Yep, Norman Bates. Norman? Wait, so... I don't know. <laughs> hey, you've been in a movie about a murder mystery. You've acted in a murder mystery. Do you want to write one? I don't know. Am, am yeah. I missing something about Anthony Perkins? Did he also have a background in, in writing, too? Uh, I don't know. I probably should have looked it up, but I didn't. I was just really delighted that this script went from the hands of Tom Stoppard to Stephen Sondheim to Anthony Perkins. <laughs> I don't know how this was the trio that he initially sought out. Then at some point, he got sort of hooked up with Jonathan Lynn, who... Okay was an actor in his own right, stage actor, and also was doing a little bit of writing and directing for a UK comedy series, I think a political comedy series. Lynn sort of got on board with this. He, he took the little script, he went away, I think it took him a year, he was working on this, and he came back and he had the script and Landis was going to direct it. But by that time, Landis was already on to another project, and so Landis said, hey Lynn, why don't you just direct this movie? And this was the first time Lynn had been offered to direct a movie. So he's like, fuck yeah, I wrote this script. Right, let's do this. Let's do it. So he was all excited. And he did a great job, as, as we can all acknowledge now. But it was, it was sad that initially those reviews came back and, and hurt him. But Lynn, when he came on board, really wanted Rowan Atkinson, a.k.a. Mr. Bean, to play Wadsworth. Huh. That was... That was what he wanted. He wanted it with all his little heart. I okay. And I could see Rowan Atkinson, you know, doing that, but it would have been very different. And yeah, I, he couldn't have held a candle to Tim Curry. Yeah. So the studio were kind of saying, "Hey, man, I know that this little Atkinson dude, he might be in some stuff over in the UK, but people in the US, we've never heard of him because Mr. Bean wasn't really a thing yet in the uh, US." So. They were like, we don't know who this dude is. I think he was on Blackadder at the time and yeah. some other UK stuff. So he would have been a very obscure need, casting, to be sure. We're going to need a bigger face. And somehow the answer to this bigger face was Tim Curry. Tim Curry certainly has appeared in many beloved things around that time period, but I'm not sure his face is what's known. Rocky Horror Picture Show and then Legend, he doesn't show his yeah, face. Yeah, you couldn't recognize him from either of those things. So I don't really know why Brown Atkinson wasn't okay, but Tim Curry was. But they're like, yeah, that Tim Curry, dude. Well, it was the right choice. And oh, it definitely was the right choice. But why Tim Curry was actually pitched second was because he was good friends with Jonathan Lynn from back in high school ah. because they used to go to boarding school together. Nepotism for the so, win! Yes, so Lynn just called him up and said, hey, can you come be in this movie about this board game that I'm doing? <laughs> Curry's like, sure. Then they're shopping this all around to different people. And it turns out a lot of people really loved the game Clue. And they were really enthusiastic about being in a game about Clue. Martin Mull, I think, was on board with Clue just because he thought this sounded like fun. And Tim Curry, I believe, is the same way. Carrie Fisher initially is cast in the role as Miss Scarlet. So oh. she's one of the first people they sign. 
and she's on board with this film and she was excited to do it. Wow. Oh, it, that's hard. It, it's I hate saying it because we all love Carrie Fisher, but oh, yeah, I don't think she would have been a very good Miss Scarlet. No, not anywhere near the right Miss Scarlet that we sort of ended up with, but she was fully cast. Then she ended up having to go to rehab. And even though she checked into rehab, she was still slated to do this film. And this is a fun quote I found from the director, because apparently Lynn is self-admittedly that he was a little naive in the Hollywood script filming process because he was a theater guy over in England. And so Fisher came to him and said, I'm going to still do this movie from rehab. Like, it'll be fine. The quote is, she said, oh, yes, they'll let me out during the day and I'll just come back at night. And I thought, really? So I asked Deborah Hill, the producer, and Deborah said, Yes, that sounds good. I think Deborah was also on cocaine, but I didn't know that. <laughs> then, then it was put to Don Steele, and she didn't seem to have a problem with it. I didn't know that everyone in Hollywood was snorting cocaine. I was really naive. They weren't doing that in Hampstead, where I live. Then the insurance company got involved, and they were the ones that said, absolutely not. What are you thinking? Which apparently surprised everybody but me. <laughs> So apparently, yeah, Carrie Fisher had checked into rehab, was still planning on doing this movie and just getting kind of day passes, sort of like the dude that was in Troll 2, I guess, oh, the guy that yeah. was just in the institution and got the day Good pass Lord. to come be in it. But so I guess everyone involved on in this, except for the director, might have uh, on the crew production, cocaine might have been a thing. But it was the 80s, right? Everyone was. Yeah, it was L.A. in the 80s. Yeah, of course, there was a lot of cocaine involved. But uh, yeah, so Carrie Fisher is out and they had to bring in Warren really last minute to replace her. But we all say it's the excellent choice. It's crazy to think that Leslie Ann Warren was a last minute uh, replacement because uh, she shines so well in this role. You would think this is something she'd been preparing for for a long time. That's wild that she like four days prior to it has been told like, OK, yeah, you got to play this character. Other fun little trivia things, Lynn initially brought everyone onto the Paramount lot to screen His Girl Friday to say, the speed of this dialogue, this is what we're going for. Yeah, that, <laughs> right? that, so that clocks. He yeah. set that up. And the sort of fallout for this film for a little while was very sad because, like I said, he got sort of dismissed from all of his further directing duties for a really long time until he eventually came back on the scene with My Cousin Vinny. So that was a, oh, a good reboot to his nice. career. Yeah, good. Yeah. Good for him. But there was a period of time, two years after Clue opened, that he apparently went into a rental store back when Blockbuster, RIP. And Clue was on a shelf with a bunch of other really terrible movies with a sign saying, do you dare to rent any of these? Aww. And that crushed his little soul. Man. Yeah, I was like, oh my God, I feel so bad. But he has since... Him and the other actors have started to see just the cult popularity and love that this film has amassed over the years that really started when a group of eighth graders reached out to Landis to ask for the permission to do Clue as a stage play oh. in their Midwestern middle Aww. school. <laughs> and this was the moment that Landis is like, oh, my God, eighth graders were relevant to eighth graders I in arrived. the 90s. From this movie. Because that is really a big thing when your movie actually reaches an entirely new audience base. And there's nothing more new of an audience base than 10 years later. You're reaching eighth graders that would have never even heard of the film coming out in theaters. I mean, and if you've made it with eighth graders, you're in, man. 
you are there a tough critical group like you think the french new wave cinema critics were tough like no try to pass anything in front of a group of 14 year old kids jesus he was really touched by this and he told them like absolutely do it just uh do it without asking Paramount for permission because you don't want to fucking deal with them. So yeah, they, they issued uh, the Paramount lawsuits, but yeah, that's how I know LA did put on a musical later because they did have to seek out, you know, Paramount's permission and stuff, but I guess they got it. So yeah, all of these things come together. And then the final quote from Martin when asked what he thinks makes this film so beloved by many, it was, that I have a theory. It's a movie that is about adult stuff, but you don't need a lot of hands-on experience to know what they're talking about. It's about murder and sex and blackmail, but you don't really get your hands dirty because it's so silly. It's almost like the characters in it were based on characters in a game. Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) He was kind of just saying, like, yeah, this movie's fun. It deals with a lot of dark themes, which appeals to kids, but you don't actually have to take it seriously. And there's something really fun um, in that sort of campy quality. So it's this timeless levity of death, murder and mayhem. So speaking of those characters from games, top five. My top five. Okay, so honorable mention goes to uh, Yvette's cleavage because it's really one of the stars of this thing. Yeah, yeah. In accordance with that. My shout out was to whoever designed Scarlet's dress. So this, there were some reviews of this thing. Uh, I noticed that like described it as the battle of the cleavages. Yeah, I'm, I'm more of a torso and, and legs girl, but the silk on her body was just so great. Oh, my God. She's so hot. She's so fucking hot. My true number five is whoever I, I should have looked this up, but the set designer for this movie deserves some sort of award because the sets in this are fantastic. Uh, yeah. The study wanted the study that study to be my study. My number five. And this is going to be crazy because I rarely do this, but it's an all all cast five. All right. Number five. We've got Mrs. Peacock, Eileen Brennan. It's hard to narrow down the cast of eight, I guess, is kind of the principal cast here. And narrowing them down to five, but Mrs. Peacock made the cut. All of her reactions to stuff are so great. Her gasps and her gasness and her nervous chattering. Ah, She's just really, really wonderful. Okay. My number four, uh, gotta give up to the writers for this thing. I mentioned earlier when Colonel Mustard shows up and like we're told your name is Colonel Mustard. That's a pseudonym. There are many things like that that I think are great moments of reverse engineering that the writer said, OK, this is what it's based on. These are the elements from that game. How do we work these into it and make that feel like it makes sense and that it's organic? And they found like every way to do that. I think the fact that they are able to take the board game and flesh it out so much and still maintain so much of the board game, I think is just awesome. An example of someone reverse engineering a movie or really getting all the elements from your source material in Street Fighter, the movie. If you ever, yes. if you ever watch that, they, if I've ever watched that, of course you've watched that. Who am I kidding? <laughs> of course you've watched the thing that I like. Ugh, God damn it. I just want to ruin everything that's important to you. No, you're, it's you're my on, life goal. You're on your way. I, 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 st- I think now I see the, the true purpose of this podcast is to ruin all the things that I like. That makes sense. But Street Fighter, the movie, they get so many characters from the game in there in one way or another. The movie itself is crazy. I personally adore it. It hasn't really taken on uh, the 
cult film status that Clue has, but it's another example of, okay, here's our source material. Get all these details in there. Find a way to make it happen. So props to the writers for really getting there. Which I believe was principally just Jonathan Lynn. I think he right on. is the, the writer of the screenplay. My number four, Miss Scarlet. Okay. Warren, God, she's hot. She's also just great. She just owns this femme fatale role. Actually, it's really just fun that all of the women in this sort of represent a different angle of the noir femme fatale, whether it's the more bitter sort of spinster of Peacock, even though she's not a spinster, the very hyper sexual and free Scarlet, the Black Widow, Mrs. White, and the French maid that right? They all have these different forms of sexuality. And Miss Scarlet is bringing hers. She's just absolutely delighted by all the scandal that's around her. So uh, my number three is Madeline Kahn. Uh, like I said, we, I don't think we talked about her enough during the main thing, but Madeline Kahn is just uh, I, I love her just so I mean, I love her from so many other things. I loved her like in Blazing Saddles when I was a kid and in many other things that she did in this movie. She has such a intense icy death stare going the entire film. Uh, and it's not like not even just that great improvised moment that she has about a vet uh, at the very end, but just like her intensity throughout the entire thing is it's just, it works so well for this black widow type of character. It does. Absolutely. Oh, Madeline Kahn. Number three, Mr. Green, Right, Mr. Green. I'm usually not as much one for physical comedy, but he really, really brings the physical comedy here. He's very clumsy. He falls down a lot. And it's in a way that's somehow endearing. And so his entire character is just very sheepish and endearing throughout all of this, which is why I even more than the weird hypercorrection with his going home and sleeping with his wife or whatever. I don't like that for the things we already talked about, but I also don't like it because it suggests that we might not know really who Mr. Green is as a person. And I want him to be this person that we see on screen for 87 minutes. This bumbling, adorable, submissive little dude, because he does just sort of curtail and respond like Tim Curry just telling him to sit. And he does. <laughs> he knows how to take orders. Really he, yeah, well. he just kind of yields to the people in the scene around him. And there's something really subtle about that. But there's also something really great that shines. And so Mr. Green is canonically Mr. Green to me. And yeah, nobody can take any part of him away from me. I dig it. Uh, my number two is Tim Curry. Uh, just because like like I said earlier, this is not Tim Curry like at his full potential. You know, this is not Rocky Horror Picture Show Tim Curry. This isn't like legend Tim Curry or odd video game cutscene spice Tim Curry. Uh, but it is Tim Curry at like very focused, uh, very sneering, very wry the entire time. And then like when he needs to be, the energy is up and he's right ready to sprint down that mansion a hundred different times to tell us everything that we need to know. So just props to Tim Curry for bringing it so big in this one. Yeah, I had a really hard time between two and one. I went back and forth for a really long time. Mm -hmm. I'm still not set on these numbers, okay. but I will say two is also Tim Curry for me. It's so hard not to put him in a number one slot. And on certain moments, I maybe would. But I've seen him go bigger. And yet he's still one of the 
brightest things about this movie. It's really in the second half where he kind of picks up all of his energy. Although even throughout the first half of the film, he has the most verbal work that he needs to do. He's got mass batches of texts that are almost tongue twisters, and he needs to deliver them very dryly, very quickly. And it's just a lot of memorization because there are no cuts. And it's really, really impressive on a lot of levels. So he probably should be number one for that alone. But yeah, patron saint Tim Curry, he can do no wrong. My number one for this film is one law herself, Leslie Ann Warren. I adore her so much in this movie. It sounds funny to call it face acting because it's acting. You do it with your face. But her face is phenomenal in this film. All these sly, like, eyebrow raises that she has, all the smirks that she has, all the way that she, like, just positions herself throughout the movie work so well for this character who is a confident, sexy woman who has sex workers' rights to the core. This woman is, this character, this portrayal, everything about her is fantastic. I love when she's accused in, I think it's ending A, where he's like, true or false, you know? No, it's ending C, because he's going through all of the accusations of everyone, and then he gets to her, and he's like, true or false? And she's like, true! Like, she's so excited that he got her, <laughs> I know, her yeah, that's great. Right. Like, True! Who are you? You're amazing! It's <laughs> like, like, not even mad she's been found out, she's just fascinated by him. Yeah, she's like, nice job! Um, So yeah, it was really hard to detangle Miss Scarlet, Mr. Green, Tim Curry, and my number one, Madeline Kahn. Yeah, (laughs) Mrs. White. Good call. Yeah, it's hard to put somebody above Tim Curry, but my God, Madeline Kahn. If you're going to, yeah, Madeline Kahn, the legend herself. So wonderful. So yeah, we've already sung Madeline White's praises, but I just her voice, Mm -hmm. everything about her voice just makes me so sublimely happy. And she uses it to her maximum advantage. Husbands should be like tissues, strong, dependable and disposable. Exactly. Exactly. All five of them. She's so wonderful. All right. So um, cruelty rating. I would say modern day cruelty rating is a three. Theatrical version cruelty rating if you were denied all the endings to this movie, let's say an eight. When you're trying to think of, okay, if I had just seen this movie with one of the endings, would it have worked? Probably not, right? Because the ending does not cohesively adhere to the film strongly enough to survive on its own. You need all three to get that clue feeling and experience. So... Yeah, I'd have to kind of agree that it would be a crueler demand on the audience. I don't know if I'd quite go to eight because the rest of the film is delightful. So I would just say it wouldn't necessarily be cruel. It would just be disappointing. I guess I was like, in by and, eight, I was thinking the like the, the critical reaction to this, what that seemed to be. Yeah, so I'll go with like maybe a six and okay. the initial theater release. So the yeah, the film needs sort of all three endings to work. It's not as odd of an experience to watch in the modern day with all of its endings, but in the 80s this would have been mm-hmm. been odd. Yes. And yet at the same time, it's still Clue. We've got a lot of different iterations of Clue. A lot of reasons to love Clue. Do we want to discuss other mediums in which various iterations of Clue can exist? So there is one, I suppose, that's slightly relevant to cinematic forms because it is in itself recorded 
onto VCR or VHS for your VCR. Thank and what you. is that, Benji? Clue the VCR home game. Yes. And so when I mentioned earlier in this podcast that I have thrown many a, a clue extravaganza party, one of those well, it wasn't that one wasn't really as much of a party. One of them involved us finding this VCR game of Clue. And it is painful. Just a really tough game to fully stomach. The board game is way better. Oh, yeah. Because there's I, just so much pausing and rewinding, yeah. and there's all these multiple endings, so. I think we made a go of trying to play that thing and gave up after about 15 minutes of it. <laughs> because even if we could understand it, it wouldn't have been any fun. Why we're bringing it up is because we will be playing a snippet for you here once we safe word out. Because in the end, tragically, communism was just a red herring, which means that we must now escape to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. And where is that, Benji? Oh. Space! You are about to meet the suspects, weapons, and rooms of the VCR mystery game, Clue. Watch carefully, and I'll be back in a few minutes to tell you about the game. Don't you think it's strange that she should invite us back here so soon after her brother's murder? Poor Mr. Body. Police never did find out who killed him. You don't have a clue. Could have been any one of us. Welcome to Body Mansion. I am the butler, did it. One to five murders will be committed here this weekend, and it's up to you to solve them. Ten suspects are in the mansion. Some will be murderers. Some will be victims. I am never a victim or murderer. You have just witnessed the introduction. If you already know how to play, then get on with it. There we go, and I'm the double to the spot where the action You better believe it, boy. Daddy does a thing, computing, checking, clues, and troubleshooting. Clue clubs. 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 Clue cl